Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers all around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Cauldron Films, Arrow, Synapse, Severin, Mondo Macabro, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you have been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That is D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-D-V-D.com. And be sure to visit their sister site, cauldron-films.com. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Collections include John Carpenter's Halloween, Universal Monsters, Night of the Living Dead, Creepshow, Twin Peaks, Evil Dead, and so many more. Just released is the first officially licensed collection of Mandy t-shirts featuring Nick Cage and his bloody, gory Lizzie the Tiger and, of course, the Cheddar Goblin. All officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off when they use the code COD10 at checkout. This week's episode is also sponsored by RLJE Films and their new film, Sun, available now on demand, digital HD, and in limited theaters. There is no cure for true evil. Emily Hirsch and Halloween's Andy Matichek star in this shocking and twisted horror film, son. After a mysterious cult breaks into Laura's home and attempts to kidnap her son, he becomes extremely ill. Laura commits unspeakable acts to keep him alive, but she must decide how far she is willing to go to save his life. Watch Sun in select theaters on demand and digital HD today. Go to sun.official.film to find the theater nearest you. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code COLORS, C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% of your yearly subscription. Welcome to Colors of the Dark podcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. Which podcast are you doing? You're here. Okay. I watched a lot of movies last week. I know. I saw the- None of them for the show. (laughs) No, for Pure Cinema, you guys did like 25 films. That was insane. I found out, out, yeah, we found out that he was, uh, Quentin was guesting on a Tuesday night, and I had to watch 21 films by Saturday, which I don't think I've ever done quite that. And no, that's like more than a festival. <laughs> like we always talk about how that's like our favorite thing at film festivals is literally you will get up in the morning, shower, and then you'll go watch films the entire day, break for lunch, watch a whole bunch more films, and then go drink. And it's like my ideal life. But that said, even it's not quite that intense. 
Yeah, no, but it but it was fun, and and you can go listen to that stuff. Four and a half, or it ended up being four hour episode, but it was like a four and a half hour um, sit down. We, we didn't expect that. We sat down, not knowing how long we would be sitting down for. But but I will say there was a couple um, horror titles that were on his list that we didn't get to. That I will, especially one in particular that I will pull into our next deep cuts because it was really great, and it's one I hadn't seen before, and I it didn't didn't look good to me. I thought it was going to be not very good, um, and it was actually great. So I will mention that on our next deep cut. Um, and, and so we are doing something a little different here today. Uh, something that we've been, we've been talking about how we wanted to, um, do our show in general, just when we first decided we were going to do a new show. And part of it was the format you guys have been listening to. But one of the things we wanted to pepper in, not every episode, but was to do countdown episodes mm-hmm. where we do, you know, count down the top 10 of whatever it would be, whatever the topic. And so we are going to be doing a, uh, later on in the show, after we look at our new films, we are going to be count- counting down our personal top tens of the seventies. Um, but there's a qualifier the here. Yes, well, there is a qualifier. Not only are they just personal films, personal favorite films, yeah. they are also no franchises allowed. So this knocks out the alien, the omen, you know, Jaws, anything Jaws. Um, Exorcist. I mean, it really knocks. The, and, and the big reason is I think we'll do other things where we'll focus on our favorite franchises and things. But the big reason is like we are both. I know people mostly know us who listen as podcasters, but really our inspiration is both as filmmakers. Yeah. And that's been our, a big part of our life. And it is a big part of our life. So I think of what are the films that really like influence you and get under your skin and that maybe the kind of stuff you want to do is going to come through some of those. And the seventies for me are, is the decade. Like that's the decade I'm most excited. Like the eighties is what I grew up on, but the seventies is what I kind of graduated to when I was the seventies. Yeah. I had to say like, I was the same where I grew up on the 1980s stuff. But when, like when I was finishing up my PhD, I focused my last couple of years in my dissertation on the 1970s. Cause I was far more fascinated by the dynamics that were happening then and how you would have, high budget horror that was selling on like a studio scale where you were getting these like giant horror films, but at the same time you were getting the grindhouse stuff. So it was kind of these polar opposites where everything was either huge and studio run or literally like the most, you know, bootstraps production ever. Um, And so just that whole environment fascinated me and also the transgressiveness how post-war everything was just all about make me feel something, even if it's repulsion. And so everything feels like it's more extreme. It feels dangerous. And, and I a lot of politics that. slipping in, like yeah. there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of danger. And then the other, the third factor I think in the seventies is also art because it's also the rise of the art film in a lot of countries, right? The seventies, sixties and seventies. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that's bleeding into horror. And so the, I, what's interesting about the seventies and obviously we'll be diving in more in a sec, but is that it, the A24 and a lot of the films we're seeing now, you can now really see it's a bit of a return to that decade, much more than the 80s, you know, in terms of the style. I have yelled about that so much online because the phrase elevated horror pisses me off to no end because horror has always been fucking elevated. So get over that shit. I think it's almost just you mean adult is really the word. It exactly is. And we see it throughout all of history is horror is either being made for adults, not even necessarily for adults, but with adult protagonists. And then the next decade, it'll be for teens. And so if we even just look back 1960s and 50s, it was all teen fare. Then we get into the 70s, adult, 80s, we return to teens, 90s, it was still teens for the most part. Then we start getting into like the more kind of Japanese remake stuff, 
Those were a little bit more adult. Um, and, you know, torture, it's going to Torture porn stuff. Uh, French Extreme is obviously a little older, but still not mature. And then I think A24, and, and we just use A24 as an example, but all the stuff we're seeing now, like festival horror even, film festival horror, it's obviously aimed at a slightly older it's audience just, because teenagers aren't at festivals. It's so just it's, adult know. stories. It is yeah. the difference between the problems that the kids have in Nightmare on Elm Street versus the adult problems that they have in Hereditary. I want all um, of them. I, I, yeah. I want. The, that's why the show's called Colors of the Dark. We love the horror for kids. We love yeah. adults. But, but I think for me, just I've always kind of, this, these are the kind of stories I most get under my skin. And, and a lot of the films on my list, you know, there's a few that would be off the 10 that are uh, almost equally as influential that got under my skin. But I went with ones that even if they're not necessarily as good, have just, I think about them all the time. Well, I'll be walking around and think about horror and some of them just come back to you. So yeah. we won't, we won't be doing cast offs on this. We're going to save uh, our next few for a Patreon episode. So yep. the, people can hear what our runners up would be there, but we're going to keep yeah. it to the 10 when we get down. Cause to it, I made a list of 25 and yeah, starred exactly. Exactly. my 10. And it's going to change by the time we get to it. I'm going to. I forced myself to put it into order only because I knew otherwise I would have a list of 30 as well. So I forced myself. So we'll see how it goes. And I guess we will do it like we do when we get to it, like normal, when we do our top 10 at the end of the year, we do a thing where like, if you're, if my first, uh, my number 10 is your number two, you, you stop me from. Hold it. Explain. For- and we, and then we'll both talk about it when it's a little higher. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure we stole that from Patrick Bromley on F this movie way back we may years have, ago. But we love Patrick Bromley. So it's, we're going to call it. We're we're homaging his show. Yeah, it's not where we stole it from; it's where we lifted it to. Patrick, we <laughs> elevate with ele- elevated picking. <laughs> um, so, but, but we're gonna first, get our new films. Yeah, we have some batshit crazy stuff. So let's kick off with we did another one of our public screenings through USC, and this time we watched what is honestly one of my favorite films, and this just confirmed it. Um, I consider it to be like a near perfect film, to be honest. And cool. that is Day of the Beast from 1995. This one is coming to blue in just a couple of weeks from Severin. It's going to be glorious and beautiful. And Alex was, um, the director was very involved in the making of it, this disc and making sure that it looks glorious and beautiful. And um, also there's interviews with him on the actual release. So you don't want to miss that. But seeing it with a crowd as best we could was fantastic. Yeah, it's as close as we get. We see live chat. I mean, the cool thing is there's like, let's say there's 220 people there at the start. It's like, you can tell the majority had not seen it. And so there was a lot of excitement because tonally, this is just a movie. If you haven't seen it, there aren't a lot of movies with quite this tone where it can have something really violent followed by a really funny moment and just gag after gag. But the thing that really broke my heart was like, we do our intro and then it starts. And then like 20 minutes into the movie, you can see, you know, maybe 20 people who will then turn off because they think they know what the movie is. But that's right when the movie kind of starts to shift its crazy gear. We didn't have much fall off, not as much no. as we had with Cruel Jaws. <laughs> no, no, but I just, anytime I see somebody drop off, and I don't, of course, people come for all sorts of reasons, but whenever I see that, I'm always like, oh, if you just waited 10 more minutes, you would have been. 10 more minutes, Satan shows up, out. man. No. It gets crazy. But that movie, oh. I can't recommend Blind by that thing. Yeah, blind, but you do not, like, Day of the Beast is worth the blind buy. The whole setup of it is, um, it's one of those, like, holy shit, why didn't I think of this, where this priest has to be sinning so that he can get in touch with the Antichrist. Like, he literally has to sin continuously and ultimately sell his soul to the devil so he can get close to the Antichrist, who he knows is being born on Christmas Day. 
And so it's ultimately a Christmas movie. And he has no idea how to sell his soul to the devil. He has no idea how to be satanic in any capacity. So while um, he is kind of trying to do this, he very naively um, recruits a death metal record store clerk. Um, Yeah, who's, who's phenomenal. And a fake TV psychic. Um, and the three of them have to fight the Antichrist on Christmas Day. And it's just hilarious. It is kind of a comedy of manners in one part. Um, but at the same time, it's got some chilling moments to it when they actually start getting into like the satanic rituals and stuff like that. Um, part of it is screwball comedy. I mean, there's, there's definitely got Peter Jackson shades to that early, those early three films of Peter Jackson's, Mm -hmm. which I like. So, you know, and Sam Raimi too. So it's like, if you like that stuff, give it a try. Cause, uh, it seemed to be the people who showed up for this one really enjoyed it. So, yeah. Uh, and it's also, we do this screening and just so you understand, it's like we, you can actually interact. And as soon as the movie ends, you, we actually bring in people. So listeners who are there, we bring them on zoom and stuff. So it's a really cool chance to meet people who've been listening to the show for some people for, uh, you know, seven years have heard different versions of the various yeah. podcasts we've done. Um, so it's pretty wild. So, I highly recommend we will be having new one, but we haven't quite locked the title yet. Yeah, so we, we haven't picked the title. We're, we're between well, we've picked a couple, but we're trying to, we have to find out if we're allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll we're working on it. it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's always a rights issue, but we'll get there. But we watched a couple of the same things this week. So this week had a couple of different new releases. Shall we start with the new wrong turn? New wrong turn. Yes, because I was super curious because we knew this was not just another sequel. This is a rethinking it's a total reconceptualization of what that franchise could be. And so I had heard that this was more folk horror. And so immediately I was like, fucking folk horror, I am in. I have to say, I was a little let down by the final execution of this one. I loved the first act. Oh my God, the first act had me. Yeah, I did too. I, I thought the first act was, I mean, it's, you know, typical. It feels like a 90s teen film, right? Where all it the teenagers like, are going out and like getting pumpkin head. It was yeah. like, we roll into town and these weird hicks are there glaring at us. And it had this like pumpkin head feel to it. Well, and then there was actually a couple of really cool, like there's a couple of cool kills and like kind of booby trap kills before mm-hmm. it kind of takes its twist. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't want to really, I, I probably, even though it's in all the write-ups, I probably wouldn't tell you what the twist is because it's, you know, it's, but it isn't, I'll tell you up front just so you're not disappointed. It isn't mutants. It isn't. Hill it inbred not, hillbillies. It is not mutant inbred hillbillies. It does become torture porn, which was where it kind of lost bit, it for yeah. me. And I guess that there was something when somebody said folk horror, I wanted this to actually, because this is supposed to be Appalachia. They literally said it in Virginia, super close to my house um, on the Appalachian trail, which I was so excited about, um, which I'm hiking on for a full week this summer. So I, I love that, you know, they kind of used it, but at the same time, there is such a rich history of hillside witchcraft there, which you actually see shades of in Pumpkinhead, but there is just such a rich history of Appalachian mountain witchcraft. So why nobody has made a damn Appalachian mountain witch movie is beyond me. Like I remember my grandmother doing it. She would practice this shit called knot magic where you would tie knots in string and you would say these little incantations while you do it. And it's fused in with Christy. It's, it's weird stuff. Um, but somebody someday is going to make a movie about it. Yeah. So when somebody said Appalachian folk horror, immediately I was like, oh, shit, this is it. 
I might have said that before there. I saw it. Like, I might have yeah. thought it was folk horror because I saw the um, skull kind of costumes. Yeah. I won't say what they are, but like, I agree. It's not, I wouldn't call this folk horror at all because it, it, I mean, it's kind of, it brushes up to it, but it's a different thing um, without the twist. I will say, it, I think you need to, see, I know we talked about it last week. You really do need to see, you might not love it, but I think you'll Stater. be excited because, Everybody my own, keeps telling right. But also, it. my only review of this because it looks the same as needed more Seder. Because if this film had been made by the person who made Seder and you took the teen thing but then added this very kind of out there um just something that has this other quality this doesn't have another quality like a supernatural quality i guess that you're you might be looking for in this and and Seder would be good but i will say if you are a fan of lord the third lord of the rings uh is it the king the king one yeah uh, you will love this movie because this had even more endings than that movie. Yes. Uh, oh, my God. That movie had 17 endings and won an Oscar. This one might have 21 endings. This was one of those movies where you keep like going and no, no, nope. it's still going. It's and for somehow, ending. somehow it still only ended up at like 100 minutes. And again, I will repeat this movie. I liked this so much better than the original conceit. And not just because I don't want to get all like cancel culture but, um, you know, the whole inbred mutants in Appalachia thing, it's a bit played. We've been there. I've seen it done well. Thank you, X-Files. But, you know, wrong turn by the time it was getting up there in the franchise, they'd been a little bit played out. Well, I, th- um, I think it's a good thing to reinvent. Yeah. It. And I, and and I actually, this, I don't dislike this movie. I actually no. kind of like it. I like the first half a lot. The, I, there's got a couple beats towards the very end that I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But there's yeah. something about it that's, yeah. yeah. It definitely got more torture porny than I wanted. But that said, the first act into the second, some damn good kills. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's definitely worth the, watching. The traps in the woods and stuff, I was not expecting those. And they came out of nowhere and made me gas. So this yeah, is definitely worth watching. Even if it's not what I was wanting it to be, it's still got something that I really like the lead in the original. I thought the, the lead, she was, was strong. Really like she was good. She makes some pretty big decisions in the film where you're yeah. like, oh, okay. And and I followed her. Some of the side casting I didn't think was good. Like some of her friends, there was a one one guy in particular that's just like, oh, it's that typical asshole, just that he stuck character. Early, uh, so that I made just, me happy. That kind of stuff can bother me. But um mm-hmm. and Let but me it has just say for hill folk that supposedly never leave their little um enclave and are supposed to, you know, have never, you know, come down out of the woods. That main guy was very well coiffed. He had the most GQ cut beard I've ever seen. Man. Like, I don't know, like they're sharpening bare bones or something. He's he's um, a good actor though. That guy is yeah, he's from he was, um the re- American remake of We Are What We Are. The yes. thing? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's very handsome. Like yeah, yeah. like like Sean like older gentleman handsome. Yeah. yeah um, so yeah. But he's very um, he's very well coiffed in this movie for a hill folk. I mean, now she's giving you a spoiler of his uh, manscaping, but that's okay. You can still watch it and see the manscaping for yourself. Um, okay, so uh, going kind of more bonkers, um, I would say this is yeah. the one. Uh, and I've got I've got a fun little extra t- tidbit on this one. But um, so Shadow in the Cloud, uh, directed by Roseanne Lang, who is a Kiwi director who a long time ago I'd seen a short, like maybe twelve years ago, of hers that I had liked, but it was nothing. It wasn't genre. Um, and so I had heard about this. It had some controversy because I guess Max Lantis had originally written the story. But to the people who try to, you know, kind of stop you from seeing this or enjoying this, it's like you have to remember Roseanne Lang directed it. Chloe Grace Moritz is gangbusters in it. And to the idea that you would go back to somebody's story credit to try to ruin all the hard work is insanity. So it please is, don't do that. Crazy. Yeah, don't yeah, make do sure that. you take There's, in the movie. If you don't like the movie, it's definitely a movie that won't be for everyone because it's really crazy. Um 
But uh, anyway, I, I only watched this. I would never have watched it, but our friend Dick watched it. And he was like, actually, I was totally surprised by it. And then I watched it and I had the exact same react. I was reacting in a way whereas every beat gets more increasingly crazy. Yep. And then I kept thinking to myself, okay, this the only thing this reminds me of is like Crank 2. And if you and I know a lot of people who hate those movies, but if you don't hate those movies, you might like this movie the way I did. So I, when I was first kind of presented with this, actually one of, I, I'd heard about the whole controversy and everything. And it actually had really piped up online talking about how, you know, never disregard a film because one person on it, you know, oh. did something. Um, there's hundreds of people that work on these movies. But that said, um, with this one, I had heard, somebody had told me, remember that Bugs Bunny cartoon about the gremlin on the plane? Yeah, it's that as a movie. And immediately I was like, oh, you know what? That uh, I'll see it when I see it. Um, and then you had told me how great it was. And I saw all of these other reviews of it popping up on Letterboxd, giving it like four stars. And so, you know, I was like, you know what? Fine, I'm in. This movie is fucking bonkers. Yeah. So it literally, and um, it kind of breaks like the the standard movie rule in this, but somehow it does it so that I was with it in that capacity. I was frustrated by it at first, but I kind of by the end was like, you know what? Fuck rules. Um, it has three different storylines all running simultaneously, none of which have anything to do with each other. So traditionally, you will have your A storyline, your B storyline, your C storyline, but they're all somehow intertwined. In this case, you have a girl who shows up, said she is supposed to be on this military transport. So and This is World War II, just so people, world if you war know II. nothing about this film, it's kind of uh, could be set in the same world as what was that one we liked a couple years ago where they were on a plane? Overlord. Okay. Yeah, it, could, it looks like it could literally be in the same universe as that. Yeah. And so it is, you know, she shows up, she, she announces to this massive crew of guys, like 12 guys, like, Hey, I am supposed to be on this plane as a crew member. Here's my papers and here's my order. And they're immediately like, no fucking broads. Women aren't crew on planes in the military. And immediately they put her in like the little gunner position in the fishbowl down on the bottom of the plane and won't let her out. And she can hear him over intercom talking like crassly about her. That's storyline number one. So there's some jazz going on with all of that and why she's supposed to be there. And, you know, there's there's something going on with that that develops into a bigger story. Then second, there's a gremlin on the plane, which is not a spoiler because it's in every trailer and descriptor of the movie. And, and, actually- and by gremlin, they actually they they. They actually had obviously news footage right back in the day. The yeah. newsreels they called gremlins. What they really meant was like that the Russians are going to tamper with your thing and their planes. But but in this, it's a literal creature. Like like you know, it looks like something out of Twilight like a Zone. Giant bat thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fucking with the plane. And then third, they are currently under attack from like all of these different Japanese fighter jets all at the same time. Over the ocean in the middle of World War II. So usually those three things would all have to do something with each other and being connected. In this instance, no, they're just all three happening simultaneously. So literally it's, I'm dealing with the gremlin. Now I have to go fire at the Japanese planes. Now I have to save this package I'm supposed to deliver. And I'm crawling upside down underneath the plane while it's in motion at, you know, 8,000 feet. It's yeah. insane. And we'll never tell you what she's doing outside no. the plane. Cause that, there, there are some moments that, no, you're right. They come to get some of those things come together for moments, but they're, they are parallel. And then there's, and then there's just, it's one of those movies where, and I've had a couple people I've talked to about it who at, there's a key beat. What that's so absurd, like to the point where you could start hating this movie. You could even turn it off. 
And yet I was sitting there almost standing out of my seat wanting to go, hell yeah, let's see something insane. Holy shit. The final, the last 10 minutes of the movie, I was like, that is how you fucking end a movie. Yeah, no, there's just a couple points where this will be a taste thing. So don't, don't, you know, somebody, some of you listening will watch this and go, what were they talking about? This is terrible. And, uh, but what I don't think any human on earth could say is that the director didn't direct the shit out of this movie because this was a movie. Yeah. No, she makes big swings in this. That is the thing. There is a very, um, safe version of this movie. Yeah. There is a very safe version that just follows the storyline, does not, you know, keeps it very 1930s, does not remove you from the time period. This thing has a techno score. It's got crazy fucking lighting. It's basically Mandy in the 1930s on a plane. Yeah, that's, um, no, it's, it's like, it, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah, Mandy Crank in a plane. Um, in a plane. And, and, and uh, to be perfectly honest, Chloe, Chloe Grace Moritz always gets such great reviews. I, I just personally never been, to be honest, interested in, in her as an actress in any of the things I've ever seen her in. Not, not personal against her. I just have never been particularly grabbed. And in this, she's excellent. So yes, I really I noticed agree. her. Um, so just the one adding thing I'm going to add to that. So that's obviously, you know, we obviously are giving a thumbs up, but telling you it might not be your jam. Um, but so after that, I was so interested in what she did to get this gig because the short I had seen about 12 years ago is nothing like this. It's about three Asian actresses auditioning for a roles as different types of Asian stereotypes. And it's very political and it's brilliant. Like it's really smart, but it's not at all showy. It's a very minimal uh, performance. So I, I found the short she made two years ago on on shorts of the week and I showed it to my uh, one of my classes and we were all like yeah that's pretty much the best short I've ever seen like it is like this movie even better than this movie in terms of direction it's called do no harm and it is a um you know like a you know a 35 40 year old um uh, Asian doctor she is operating on someone at night with a skeleton crew the guy has oh, tattoos God, that all over thing his body. Is so fucking good yes. she directed that? and that's yes and that's what got her this gig and it is flawless okay. So it is one of the best played, That played at Etheria three years ago when I was a judge. And I remember being sense. like, I, I don't even have to vote, guys. This wins. Yeah, yeah. This See, I never, wins. I wasn't there for that one because this was the first time I'd seen it. And, and it, you know, obviously when you watch it, it, I've watched it, I think, three times since I watched Shadow in the Cloud because I watched it with a, and then I wanted to watch it one more time just to see because it's basically a stunt movie. It's more in line with, um, uh, what's that, those awesome uh, the raid films or something? Yeah, it, and it, it's I, more in line with that. I remember assuming that she had made that as a teaser, like that that because yeah. that doctor felt like it had so much story behind her. Right, you like, could make a yakuza film shit. set in that world. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a full yakuza film from the perspective of a doctor who has been kidnapped to treat the Yakuza boss. Yeah. And so that's, I assumed yeah. it was like a bigger sizzle. It's totally possible that maybe there's a feature script, but maybe she got picked up to do Shadow in the Cloud first. But either way, this is uh, like, I don't, I'm not harping on this on purpose. This is the, this is a talent. This is somebody who's going to like, you know, cause like to be perfectly honest, I thought Nomadland's a really nice movie, but when I found out the director then goes and makes a big Marvel movie, I'm like, okay, I guess I just don't know what you're looking for for Marvel movies because I like Nomadland emotionally, but I didn't see anything that would make me go, get Marvel on the phone. Yet when I watched uh, Roseanne Lang's film, I'm like, yes, get whoever you want on the phone because this person is basically Sam Raimiing it, you know, yeah. ready to roll. So again, just it's called Do No Harm. I highly, highly recommend that short. I'm so glad you saw, saw that before. That's awesome. Yeah, it played Etheria a That's number so cool. of years ago and it was just brilliant. And she's a Kiwi, you know, she, she and she's, um, you know, somebody who's been around 
around for a while. Like, I, like even though, like I was saying, I saw something at least 12 years ago. So mm-hmm. it's not like she just started. So it's always cool to see that it, there's paths. Is Do No Harm online now? It's on short, it's on um, the website, uh, short of the week. If you type okay. in Do No Harm, short of the week, you can watch it there. It's probably, I gotta, I gotta show that to my students. It, they so would love good. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, excellent. Well, you know what? I'm going to continue that because that's a total what the fuck movie. And I am going to like quintuple down on the what the fuckness Okay. with, I don't even know how this movie ever fucking existed ever. And that is Voyage of the Rock Aliens. I remember this on your want list years ago or even a few months ago. And I was like, what is that? And then I finally started it was on Amazon. I was like, your dream. So I have been trying to see this movie for years because all I heard is it is this batshit bonkers like 1980s musical about aliens and you have to see it and it's got Michael Berryman in it playing a chainsaw killer and that I I had to see it. And it's not good, but it's one of those things that you just don't know how the hell it exists and it's amusing. And that is exactly how I would review this. What the holy fuck? How does this exist? I could not turn it off in that capacity. The setup is that Pia Zadora is, yes, so we start with Pia Zadora. Yeah, that already is a a bonkers moment. Already, already. And I have to say, she sings like six songs in this, and there's some questionable moments with the singing. That's Okay. okay. We're going with it. So the whole setup is that her and her boyfriend are at this high school where they're constantly singing her boyfriend is in this 1950s style rockabilly band, but it's rockabilly 1950s. It's channeled through the 1980s. So it's got a real kind of streets of fire vibe in that um, where it's very kind of 1980s rockabilly kind of Ramones-ish in a Mm -hmm. a sense, like a fashion sense. Um, But her and her boyfriend go to this high school and they celebrate rock and he's in a band, but he's really violent and beats people up when they look at her. And then one day, these aliens who are all new wave, they're very much like Devo or Klaus Nomi, um, mm-hmm. pick up their reception and decide that they want to go to this town to rock with everybody. And so then they show up and then this like battle of the bands ensues. So Black Roses are leaving town at the exact moment they're rolling into town. Yeah. And so, okay. but then they show up and there's like a battle of the bands between the rockabilly and the aliens. Um, and then somehow, and this is where the beeline comes in. There's a, a prison break at the local mental institution and Michael Berryman, who is a chainsaw killer, breaks out and gets a chainsaw and shows up at the Battle of the Vans to start picking people off. Now, additionally, Ruth Gordon, yes, Ruth Gordon from Rosemary's Baby, plays okay. the town sheriff and is trying to hunt down the alien. She plays a sheriff. I've never seen her play a sheriff. That's fun. It's this whole movie. Oh, and Jermaine Jackson's in it. There we go. Now I have completed the how does this exist trifecta. I think I've told you before you remind me of her in terms of your spirit. <laughs> I don't know Gordon. why. Yeah, Ruth Gordon's my favorite favorite. She is my favorite spirit <laughs> on the planet. She's just so like, I'm still going to go kick ass even when I'm 85 and just do your thing. And always reminds me of you. So, she, thank you, know. you for that. Thank yeah. you for that. I'll take Good spirit animal. She is probably 85 in this movie. Yeah, of course. And she's. Still is like, where are those fucking aliens <laughs> through the whole movie? And it's yeah. awesome. Um, I don't know how this movie exists. Um, this was directed by a gentleman named James Fargo, who was second director on a uh, second unit director yeah. on a ton of like really, really well-known movies that you're like, oh, that's a great movie. And this was mm-hmm. like his first feature. And 
I don't know where this came from, y'all. It's like a fever dream, but I swear if you in any capacity like horror musicals, this is a must-see. It's basically a must-see across the board because, again, I still don't know how this movie exists. Just watch the opening number. It's on Amazon Prime. Just watch the opening number, and that's all you need. That's all you need to know. It is a it is a wild, post-apocalyptic beach duet between Jermaine Jackson and Pia Zadora. Um, okay. and, and there you go. So that is I'm just glad the dream of the Rock Aliens. Just glad that dream came true for you. You know, I've wanted to see this for so long. And it's one of those things where it did such a limited release. And then immediately the Blu-ray went to like 50 bucks. And I'm, you know, I was hesitant to buy it. They had a copy to rent at the video store over in Santa Monica. And I kept thinking about driving over there in the middle of the pandemic to rent it. I remember. And um, yeah, there was definitely a day where I was like, you want to take a very quarantine trip over to Santa Monica with me to get some weird movies? You catch um, COVID for that film. I know, That's I'm going to catch COVID for as, as somebody who was As somebody who has run over for Blue Velvet, <laughs> trust me, that even wasn't worth it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you got to weigh up your, your how many lives you have. I know, I know. But yeah, so I did not have to get COVID for Voyage of the Rock Aliens because it's on Amazon Prime right now. So nice. enjoy, y'all. This is a crazy movie. If I hear from enough people, I'll push play. Wait, no, no, I need no. Like 100, I need like 100 uh, thumbs up on that one. Now I have to get everybody who listens to the show to, to, to harass me. how great it is yeah. just so you have to watch it. So wow. it becomes like an inside number nine where you're pressured to watch yeah, it. Yeah, but but I, I have a feeling the quality is going to be quite different from inside number nine. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so, so don't push that one. It is Kane compared to this. Yeah, that's what but I figured. This, this is still wild. Um, well, it's not Citizen Kane, but it is one of the best horror films of the year. It's in my, I really have two. I think, um, you know, Empty Man is the only one that I'd seen prior to this that like stands above the, like I've seen a lot of interesting horror so far and when I'm keeping the list, but I've only seen a couple now that I put in that category where I'm like, okay, that's like horror films of the year. And I am talking about the new film, The Vigil, which you had brought up like a few months ago, really, because you saw an early kind of, um screening and i and i at the same time was going to but then i was like well it's going to come out anyway so let's i want to watch it fresh um but either way i think i think it'll be great for us to talk about so um you know we happen to uh know one of the producers on this who's been you know producing movies for a long time jd lifshitz Mm -hmm. uh from boulder light and i remember a long time ago him saying to me that this would be the one of their films i would like knowing my taste that he he listens to the shows uh he, he he said a long time ago i think this is the one you'll like and he is dead right um this is about um there, well, it opens with a um, a group of uh, group of people in a New York apartment who have all kind of escaped, in a sense, or left an Orthodox Jewish community, yep. a very strict community, and they are, you know, it's kind of cool how little is kind of explained about their situation, but it seems mm-hmm. pretty do- desperate the way they're living, and it's a little yeah. hand to mouth. You get the idea that they were part of this incredibly strict Orthodox community. They're all still very, you know, Jewish in that capacity, but they feel like um, they had to, by leaving that community, they literally left like their families and their, their community. Everything Um, they know to live in a modern life to experience modern yeah. things right and so the main guy i can't remember his name but it played really just a great terrific performance by guy dave yeah. davis um he is 
he's awkward around a woman and you know he just doesn't really he hasn't hasn't fully integrated to modern life but he has some pretty major scarring backstory and that's you can tell that's part of what probably pushed him to this place as he's leaving this opening meeting he gets called by somebody from his past who's been waiting outside the meeting uh somebody still in the orthodox community who says hey look i know your money's tight Uh, i can get you 500 bucks if you spend uh one full night um reading reciting prayers at the side of a body uh, as a shomer, um, which is somebody in a, this culture, most of us wouldn't have heard of this term, but somebody who is uh, reciting these passages and, and uh, looking over the body to make sure evil spirits don't take over. And yeah. So when I talked about this back in the fall, um, it's, it's definitely, you know, this is a Jewish practice, but it's very similar to what in the South we do as a, a more of like, it comes from Irish is where my family does it. But we have wakes where you stay up yeah. all with the body. Usually our aversion involves a lot of potato salad and chicken um, and fruit salad. And that's weird jello stuff with marshmallows in it that we always have at wakes. Um, There's literally wake food that corresponds with it in the South, um, or at least in my little like, you know, Appalachian Irish community, we have it. But that said, um, it's kind of the same concept where you stay with the body all night long praying. So it was interesting to see kind of- Sans food and sans demons. For, yeah. your, for your stuff. <laughs> but uh but but no this this is much more like you really get this guy he comes into the house the the wife is suffering from alzheimer's who uh, it's her husband is laid out on a you know on a slab in the in the living room with mm-hmm. a sheet on him and she doesn't she doesn't really want the guy who they've hired for the night she's like he's not right get him out of here but she's obviously suffering her own issues um and then really it's just him alone with this body for the rest of the movie. And I don't want to give away all the, all the scares. It's a nice tight 90 minutes, but it's a spooky movie. And, and it's this... been a while since I saw one that's spooky, like where you're actually a little worried. They shoot darkness really well. Like a, a low, a low camera angle looking up at a stairway of pure darkness is something that can really always work. Like, like it, in Twin Peaks or this, whatever it is, it can be creepy. And um, it does well. Yeah. That's how I will just say is this, it's a scary movie. Like, you know, and the ending gets really intense. And I have to say the demon that, you know, the film uses, I knew nothing about it. It is such a horrifying concept um, and something I'd never really seen before. So, yeah. Right. So it makes I, its history. Like, so, so actually, so that is, I'm not going to give it away, but I will say there was a Amazon TV show last year with Al Pacino that had a great pilot. Um, and it was like a Jewish revenge show had a great pilot and where it ended up was, um, I'd say just for me, just, it was like offensively terrible. Like I just thought it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in terms of like its final twist and just, it totally reduced the whole thing to utter garbage and this for it, but it's you, but it's using a lot of the same, this has a, in the flashback structure uh, of what it's showing from the war, it's having a storyline that I saw played out in that show a lot. And in this, it. I felt it a lot more on this and I thought it was really well constructed in terms of the, where does the demon come from? How does it tie into the old man's past? And why is this Shomer who's here this night going to be affected by it? And, and it links those things really well. I would say it it rushes. uh, The only, only common negative thing I have at all about it really is it kind of rushes at a certain point to the horror a little bit, Mm -hmm. like for a 90 minute movie, it's rare that I'm like, Oh, I could have used another 10 in here to build, but, but that's a minor you know, quibble. I just, for me, it really kind of got under my skin. It's one I'll, I'll look forward to watching a second time to kind of see what I pick up. Um, but yeah, I really love it. Again, if you know my taste, it won't surprise you. That's not everyone's taste. Some people, this might be uh, too, maybe too quiet, but I think there's some spooky stuff in there. So 
Yeah, this one I, I spoke of back in like August. It was it, it was early. Out. It was when um, we first started. Yeah, and yeah, I don't even remember if it was on Colors of the Darker or Patreon. Might have been. Show. Yeah, it might have been in December or something when we just yeah. started. But. I but I I absolutely loved this one and have a feeling it's going to be on, probably on my top of the year. Oh yeah, no, that's how I feel about those first those first two I've mentioned. They're they're two I feel are. are I would be shocked if they weren't. Um, so yeah, definitely take it, check it out. It is um, on all VOD right now. Yeah. Um, so then I will go to Faces in the Crowd. This is my retro title. Um, so Faces in the Crowd. This was this came up when we were talking about our American inspired giallo or our giallo inspired American films. Let me switch that, mm. reverse it. Um, so giallo inspired American films, and somebody had recommended this one to me. This is a Mila Jovovich movie from 2011, and it feels like a lifetime film, but like a really, really expensive, well done with a really intricate plot lifetime film. Like it has that same level of sleaziness and there's still a lot of like kind of, you know, sleazy moments to it. But at the same time, it's it's got this this wonderful, um, you know, expensive budget and everything's really nicely done and the acting's tight. The whole setup is that this woman is on her way home from a bar with her friends one night and she sees that the serial killer has been just going crazy in the city. They've had a couple of deaths so far. She is on her way home from a bar with her friends and all of a sudden she sees him killing somebody and he realizes that he's being watched and he attacks her and in it she falls off a bridge. It's like falling off the Brooklyn Bridge into the water below. He cuts her really bad because he uses a straight razor. It's very giallo in that capacity, mm. black gloves, straight razor. And he cuts her and she falls off the bridge. She wakes up and she has momentary amnesia, but she eventually comes to and remembers everything. But instead, what she is suffering from is face blindness, meaning she can no longer recognize anybody, including herself. And so, you know, she sees the guy that she's been dating for months now, but she can't even recognize him. She's immediately like, you're not Ted. Well, what does Ted look like? She can't even say like she just has no way to piece faces together. And so the movie gets terrifying because the cops know that the killer is going to come back and try to take her down because she saw him and she survived. And so she realizes that at any given moment, the killer could be standing next to her and she's not even going to be able to see him or recognize him. At the same time, she's dealing with her own drama. She's a school teacher. She cannot recognize any of her students to tell them apart. And there's some bad stuff that happens with that. Her boyfriend is the biggest just douche in the entire world where he gets pissed off where he's like, if you can't even see me, you don't really love me. Um, like it, he, no, <laughs> you can't he see was, through your actual disability. You no, I spent the entire movie going, look here, asshole. This is how you end up in a bear suit. Like that, that is yeah. literally how you end up in the bear suit. Right. And um, there's no bear suit in the movie. There should have been, this guy needed a bear suit, That's but right. that said, um, so just total asshole. So she's dealing with her own shit can't recommend even her own father. There's this amazing scene where she's on the subway and she thinks she's being stalked by this person. And then he's like, why are you running from me? And it's her dad. Um, and it, there's just so many good scenes like that. But then the killer who eventually realizes that she has the face blindness and starts using it to his advantage and kind of infiltrating his, her life. Mm. Now, again, this is an elevated lifetime film. It's sleazy. It's definitely got, you know, what's it again. So you said it was Denzel Washington yeah. <laughs> and uh, 1993 <laughs> and 
<laughs> he touches people and their souls go into each other or whatever. I would, I, I almost enjoyed this more than that, but oh, at the same okay. time, yeah, yeah. Um, but that said, like this, the, the director actually did some clever stuff in this in that she made, or he, I think it's a he, um, made all the guys look alike. So they all, even though that, you know, we mm. as the audience are supposed to be able to tell them apart, they're all brown hair parted the same way, similar build, similar height. And so it really is effective because like halfway through the movie, I was losing track of who the guys were um, because they did kind of cast them all looking similar. So that's what I will say is cool about this movie is midway through the audience starts experiencing hmm. the face blindness too, where you can't keep the characters straight, even though that the actors are playing, you know, the same character that they have been from the start. Um, so again, super sleazy. Don't go in expecting, you know, Citizen Kane, but this, it was, I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a fun two hours, a tight little murder mystery and fun sleazy movie. I actually read 2011. I read a psychology book a long time ago, like 20 years ago by a guy called Oliver Sacks. And he's the one who wrote about uh, that aphasia stuff because Mm -hmm. I guess his wife maybe had this issue and and it would be like, you'd have a rose in your hand and she could say, it's a long green stem. There are prickles and there's petals on the top. And she still couldn't say it's a, a rose. And that was the part of the aphasia. And so uh, he, he wrote that movie always. Um, but he also is a psych, you know, he's a famous wow. um, psychologist. In, some good books. They explore a little bit of it in this movie. Again, I would not count this as like medically accurate. But this part yeah, was cool imagine. where she's trying to figure out how to recognize people if you can't see their face. And it's much more like um, you remember how long their hair is or the distance from their mouth to their chin, like estimating it in inches mm-hmm. because you can mm-hmm. focus on central points like that, um, but you just can't see the whole thing together. So just saying like they have very wide lips or, you know, I recall that she always wears this color of lipstick, that that is how you come to recognize people. Interesting. So it's wild. Um, just a couple. I won't go deep on either of these so we can get into it. Uh, there's one I'd always wanted to see. Um, one, it was a female director who I had heard of a long time ago, Ann Turner. So this is from 1989. This is called Celia, and it's on Shudder. It's oh, a yeah. Australian film. Yeah, I'd never gotten to see this one back in the day. And I so just cool remember the box cover because it was a little blonde girl with a shotgun. Yeah, it is very horror light for the most part. Like I'd say for your average horror fan might be like, meh, but it's a, I, I instantly was like, oh, this would pair really well with the reflecting skin. It's not as gothic, but it's like the female version. Like it's, you know, that one's about the young boy. This is this young girl who's very imaginative and keeps imagining these uh, stories from the storybook that have these kind of monster hands and monsters under the bed. She keeps imagining them as different people in her real life occasionally. And it's her growing up. And it's like, so there's a lot of serious stuff about the parents and communism in Australia, blah, blah, blah. That stuff does is just so, so I'd say, but then there, it does grow to this part where, uh, a central kind of disturbing event comes from her confusion and her fantasy blur that they then have to do something about. And I thought it was a good solid movie. I think people should definitely give it a, give it a chance if they're, if they dig things like the reflecting sin. So that's called Celia. And then the last thing I was just going to mention kind of how you saw vigil early. I wanted to remind people that, um, you know, a friend of ours, uh, from back on the, the festival circuit, Jill Gervazikian, her film is a Garyan. Is a Garian? Okay. Well, I tried. Um, she knows. I've tried. I've done it right before. Um, <laughs> her film, I saw it back when it played at Knoxville because I helped introduce it. But this is the feature version of her short, The Stylist. It, it wasn't available until uh, this week. And it's mm-hmm. only available on a streaming platform that I didn't even know was a streaming platform until this week, which is Arrow. Our favorite, one of our favorite uh, distributors now has a streaming service. And 
her film was one of their first like you know new premieres so um it's obviously another place where you can see new films so you can get it on through amazon and things like that but you have to get it on the arrow app so her film is available um and i just want to remind people because it was a cool movie and otherwise i I sometimes feel like with new streaming apps people might totally forget you know there is some movie that i'd been wanting to see um the the crystallized one um me too i want to see that too maybe that's on there I I know it's on a streaming app that is not like a normal streaming app. It's probably that because I think they're putting it out. Um, yeah. That, oh, then it would be them. So that'd be on the Arrow streaming app. So we can probably we get a sample of it. Or you could probably yeah. do the thing where you try it out. I think there was a famous quote because uh, Tarantino did a thing with Edgar Wright recently. And he said, the only streaming service I have subscribed to is the Arrow one because it has cool shit or something. So it became a bit of a their tagline or something because I guess he, he likes the physical media. But well, um, I got to say. If you're going to do a streaming service, can I recommend Night Flight? Um, sure you can. Because Night Flight is just awesome. So Night Tell Flight me more, TV, Becca. Show, TV show I grew up with when I was a kid. And they've now put a whole bunch of amazing, amazing retro horror movies. Not even just horror. They've got kung fu movies. They've got weird cult stuff. They've got concert footage. Just all types of things on there. Um, so the film that we are doing as our night flight pick of the week is one that I have a feeling is a near miss on both of our 1970s lists. This one came super close. I actually, it's my number 22 on my list of 25. Hey, it made our Um, giallo list. So yeah, it did make our best giallo list. So this is one from the 1970s that I cannot recommend enough. And that is Torso from 1973, um, by Sergio Martino. This film It's like two films in one. It starts with uh, these girls at this university and there's a strangler who's kind of taking the girls down. He always used this this same scarf. And so to get away from the strangler, they decide to go to this like little farm town and rent a house to stand for a while. And he follows them there. And then the last third of this movie is so damn tense. Um, just the setup and how they they do the execution, it just becomes such a, a rather more Hitchcockian level of tension than you see throughout the rest of the movie. And it's um, the most slashery of all of the giallo. Like it's the one yeah. that feels like a you can see the mask and the and the knife all influencing slasher films. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's a really cool movie. Yeah, this is it's just really well made as well. Obviously with Sergio Martino, but this torso is currently playing on. Night Flight. Night Flight Plus is a streaming channel available on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and online. The channel is the only place where you can watch original episodes of the iconic 80s cult series Night Flight, which I grew up with, as well as an eclectic collection of cult films, music documentaries, midnight movies, concert films, and more. Our cult collection include titles from Arrow, Blue Underground, Severin, and Something Weird. Night Flight Plus is a treasure chest of weird oddities and hidden gems, so start digging. Subscriptions are $4.99 a month and $39.99 a year, but you can get a discount. Go to www.nightflightplus.com slash promo code. And for a limited time, Colors of the Dark listeners can save $10 on their annual membership with promo code COLORS. One word, COLORS. That brings it down to less than $2.50 a month. And again, that is www.nightflightplus.com slash promo code. And the promo word is COLORS. And $2.50 a month is so worth it to get Torso. God damn, you're smooth. 
That's that's. I was trying to do that in the Frank Booth voice from Blue Velvet uh, to say I didn't even know that was a commercial, and then yeah, suddenly yeah. it was a commercial. That's what podcasters right. do. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see how I just Holy went in hell. and back out. Cause... Here I was just talking about torso, thinking we're just hanging out, thinking we're just having a casual conversation, and boom. It was a commercial. In, in. Um, but seriously, I belong to Night Flight Plus. I fucking love Night Flight Plus. Night Flight would uh, only be mentioned here because Becca really genuinely loves it. And no, I, no. I grew up with I have Night Flight t-shirt that I wear all the time. Like I, I grew up with it, and it is part of the reason that I am here. Um, is I, I owe us. Okay, okay, now it's becoming a hard sell, and now and now it's like pressuring the buy. I get what I get what you're doing to me. Uh, all right, well we're gonna right. do- join, join okay. us. I think I I already have. So I think you have to. I think it's okay. Um, um, Shall we? Yeah. Well, let's let's do it. All right, nineteen seventies. Our countdown without franchises. Now, I will say because I know it's going to come up for a couple. We did talk off air. There are a couple of things that we wouldn't consider actual uh, franchises, or if a sequel came. 30, 40 years later, that is really not what sequelizations are about. They're not just cashing in on the next, the second film that came out a couple years later. So we're not counting. So there might be a couple bendings of those, but I, but, but basically it was to avoid the big front tent pole. Yeah, we were mostly looking for like the Halloweens, the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, the Friday the yeah, 13th. Have some deep cuts. Like of those, and I guess, yeah, before we even get into it, of those, uh, like if I just said to you, what is the, the greatest? film that's not on your list of those kind of tent poles do you have one like when people ask you that in general do you have a easy go-to because i always have but i'm always curious you mean out of the 1970s uh, no of the of the big franchise like are you can you know how like we used to do a show with ryan ryan is a halloween guy we know that always you know quentin is an exorcist guy uh do when you, it comes you it, know what I oh but that's not 70s no no that's eight that's oh, 90 oh, you want so i just show um i have my legs is yeah hellraiser, yeah. hellraiser okay. tattoos um but i really so, yeah. don't know the answer to this like when it comes to those tent poles i'm like i i know you have i know you're uh, somewhat mixed on exorcists in the in the i mean you love it but it's not like your number uh so i don't really i mean i would definitely I, yeah, say no. jaws is up there of course yeah jaws jaws is what i would often yeah Go to for you, of course. Yeah, yeah. Omens up there. Um, even like Phantasm was one that I consider to be one of the best. Eighties, late seventies. I want to say it's like seventy nine. Let me double check. Now, yeah, go ahead. I swear that. Oh, it is seven. I think it is seventy nine. You're right. Yeah, I remember it's one that I always associate with the seventies, and I was like, well, that knocks that off. Um, but yeah, that definitely. Oh, that okay. Yeah, no, you just freaked me. I know what's happening in my brain right now. You just freaked me out because Phantasm is literally top 10 horror movies of all time for me. And I was just like, wait, it's not on my list. I have to redo my list. And then, then I realized, (laughs) no, I know this is where my brain, this is the white we're talking about the show like this. Okay. Yeah. Like the of the deads as well, you know, are completely out. Like there was a lot from the 1970s that I was like, I would typically point at, the Exorcist, The Omens, The Of the Deads, and go like, okay, those are the best films. Um, There's only one greatest horror movie of all time, though. If somebody says, what is the greatest horror movie of all time? It has always got to be Chainsaw Massacre. There, there's no movie. I as, figured you would say The Shining. But, no, but The Shining is 1980. So, okay. Uh, we're, uh, so we're only only in 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Like, greatest film of all time. No, I just, I think, no, no, sorry, sorry. No, if you ask me the greatest horror film of all time, I'd still say The Ch- Chainsaw Massacre. Sorry, because, and I only say that, I know it's all taste, but that's the only one I have ever, whenever I think of them, I'm always like, oh, Exorcist is amazing. It has these scary things but it's mm-hmm. a studio film 
And so you're in the safety of somebody making something with big gear. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is a whole other, and Halloween has a steady cam. So the yeah. fluidity of the shot is made by a filmmaker. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's amazing to me that like if Toby had only made that movie, I would still think it's the best horror film ever made and he's the greatest horror filmmaker, but I'd be like, it would make sense to me. The fact that he could make a life force, that doesn't make sense to me. Like how does that guy end up making something as slick as that is yeah. amazing. But like that movie is so dangerous and insane and looks like a bunch of people really, you know, committed awful atrocities. There's, it's, it's really just a special movie to me. No, that so. movie definitely messed me up the first time I saw it. And I know I've talked about this on prior podcasts. I don't think it's come up on Colors of the Dark, but the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Rocky Horror, I watched them on the <laughs> same day. Cool, I was, um, it was actually, I was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And I'd never had chicken pox. This is the reason that we have the I chicken I remember pox. this part. Yeah, I remember yeah. chicken pox. Everybody is like, why do we need the chicken pox vaccine? I had it when I was six and it took like a day and I was fine. Well, if you don't get it when you're six and you wait till you're in 12th grade, it fucks your shit up. And so I was actually hospitalized for two days with it because I got that sick. And, um, and then I was home for probably two weeks with them afterwards, just like really, really deathly, deathly ill. Um, and I mean, I was like 17 at the time. But I, I ended up missing all my final exams. I had to take them late. I had to yeah. postpone the SATs. It was like a whole thing of my senior year. Oh, that's um, why you're tr- such a high achiever yeah. now. <laughs> to prove something to your senior year. I get it. Yeah, I, I had to miss all those great moments. But um, during that time, I mean, I was just so sick that my mom would basically go to the video store every day and come home with another stack. And so she would just clean the shelves of the horror section and just bring me home and everything was either a rewatch or new stuff. And I remember it vividly because it was the time when I watched a lot of stuff that um, a lot of the lesser known stuff, because I'd seen all the big things. So she was bringing me like, this looks weird. um, And I don't think you've seen this. And so she was just feeding me movies. But I remember watching Texas Chainsaw and Rocky Horror on the same day, Mm. um, covered head to toe in chicken pox. I had them under my eyelids. Um, you know, I never had them. That's how bad they got. I, I never, never got had it. them? Never got oh it. Oh my it's gosh. Yeah. That's so dangerous now, yeah, I've always so. heard. Yeah, Apparently, it, was, so. it was bad. But anyway, so. Uh, but I, I like that. I hope you get to program that double feature one day at the new Biv. Like you get to put Rocky Horror and Chainsaw together. Um, Just for that, my, my chicken pox story. But we'll have a whole other conversation about franchises and sequels from the spirit that we love because mm-hmm. everyone loves those. So this is a little bit more personal. This is each one of us. Uh, as we said, if one of us has one higher up, we will wait. But let's add a new rule. Um, let's say my number 10 or yeah, my number 10 is your number two. When we get to your number two, let the person who first had picked it start yep. the convo. And that way, you know, it's, we're not we're not trying to jump you. And there could be a lot of overlap, but I also think with me and you, usually there will be a handful that I'm won't I'm sure be, there will be. Because yeah, our taste is definitely both. some weird ones. Yeah. So anyway, I, and I always go for these ones that stuck in my craw a bit over the years. And some, mm-hmm. some, some, are, some are growers, like the, my number 10's a grower when I didn't, you, wasn't used to be on my list and then kind of has been. So do you want to kick off? I will kick off. So All right. my number 10. Daughters of Darkness. I didn't end up putting it on, even though, and I think the reason is I didn't see that new Blu-ray yet. I didn't see the 4K that you did. Oh God, it's and I love beautiful. it. So okay, it, I tell like, people about because because that is a great movie. The whole movie. This is director Harry Kamel. The whole thing is basically a fever dream from 1971. It is a couple who go to this little seaside town and sit kind of off season, like nobody's there, and they stay in this um really 
lovely yeah. hotel. Yeah. It's massive. It feels very kind of gothic Victorian with modern taste. Um, and you know, you can tell it's like off season and nobody's there. It's pretty desolate. And this mother and daughter show up and they're strange and they're reclusive, but at the same time, they're both just brimming with sexuality and they kind of seduce the couple and it's a vampire story. Um, but it takes, it's, time. Like it is slow burn, but each shot feels like a beautiful painting. It is just the most glamorous, glorious, just velveteen movie ever. Yeah. And it's got Delphine Seerig, who's a, Mm -hmm. you know, not really a genre actress. She was in all these, all these kind of huge feminist um, 1960s art films from France. And then put her in this, like as the key vampire, she's just utterly stunning. She's always a brunette. And in this, she's a blonde, platinum blonde. It's yeah, it's a really special one, but I, I need to see this 4k because everyone who sees it is like, it's the best looking. So this is a perfect um, concept of what we were talking about up at the top, where it is this combination, the 1970s adult problems. This is all adults. It is very much a mix of art because this is ultimately Euro trash. Yeah, it's um, like Euro, but, Euro horror yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, total like Euro trashy horror. But at the same time, it has this incredibly rich artistic sensibility to it. And it has this feeling of kind of this exploitive dangerness too, because it's got these weird kind of, um, uh, it's got a lot of uh, sexuality tones. There's a lot of kind of lesbian tones in it, but everything is really understated. There's also kind of this weird vibe going on between the sister and the the, the daughter and the mother. Um, everything is like these vibes that feel like they could be exploitive or they could be dangerous, but it's all very underneath. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's beautiful. If you want to see the American, um, it's not the American version, but it's like America. What America would do with this kind of story? It's called The Hunger. Yes, <laughs> you know, with Boeing, which is also a cool movie, but not it's as much classy. Bigger, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my number ten, number 10 that is daughter, uh, and I think I gave it a plural. That's a completely different movie. Daughter, singular of, ah, or is it singular? Wait, is daughters? It? I think it's daughters. I'm going to I'm going to check because I know that both exist. You know, I'm sure it's Daughters of Darkness. 1971. Um also it's a good great uh, yeah, horror Daughter movie. of Darkness is a 1990 film. You want Daughters with from, an S of Darkness. Blue Underground. A Belgium film. Yeah, it's Belgium. Harry Kumail only made two films. That and a film that I've been meaning to see that I hadn't called Malpertus which is actually a, technically aquatic horror. It's on a it's on a boat with Orson Welles is in it as well, like late Orson Welles. And it is horror, but I don't know how much. And I think it's going to be our next deep cut now. I think it's going to need to be. Because I've always wanted to watch it and just haven't for, but I, I I think I've got a copy of it. So yeah, let's, let's put that on our to watch list. That would I be feel like I've had this on my to watch list before, but I've never been able to see it. Yeah. So, yeah. Send that shit on over. Yeah. Cool. 1943 Belgium fantasy film. I am totally. Oh, wait. No, it should be from the 70s. It should be from 60s or 70s. 19. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Correction. The, the novel it's based on came out. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, 1971 Belgium fantasy horror by Harry yeah. Kamel. So it's, I've just never seen it. I'm, I'm very curious. Um, yeah, based on a 1943 novel of the same name. 
Cool, cool. Yeah, okay. So, let's uh, do it. And as I was saying, Daughters of Darkness is also a really good horror podcast that is, is an infrequent one, but by two of the best writers in the horror space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both have been writing uh, kick ass stuff for uh, years. And uh, if you can, check it out. Um, okay. My number 10, and this is one that, um, you know, would always be maybe more around the 15 spot. But the last time I saw it, I'd seen it a couple times over the years, but the last time I saw it, really liked it. It's as close, I feel like, to an American Giallo, but but 42nd street style. And that is Alice, sweet Alice um, by Alfred Soul. This is one, like when I saw it when I was young, I was like, Oh yeah, it's pretty good. And I lumped it with other slashers, but I watched it a few years ago thinking through the lens of, I was doing a triple feature for pure cinema called fuck Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and it was all these like Catholic, it was this and don't, yeah, don't torture a duckling. And uh, I can't remember what the other one, but they're all ones where Catholics did something uh, bad to people. But anyway, this is, um, this was Brooke Shields' first film when she was a, a girl. There's a really bad trailer, which is fully sexualizes her, which I actually thought was oh my really... God, I just yeah. saw it. It was, like, really trashy, and it made and it... And she's like, not sexualized no, in the movie. not in the movie. No, the movie, not even slightly. So it was just a weird... You realize how awful that kind of stuff can be. But um, it's... Uh, basically, it's these two uh, sisters uh, going to one of their first communions, uh, and uh, the couple are divorced. The parents are divorced. And basically, somebody in a mask uh, and wearing a yellow slicker um, hor- horrifically murders uh, one of these two sisters at the communion in the background. And no, and so that launches it. And the other sister becomes kind of a suspect at that time. And then more murders start happening. And I think this might be all New Jersey. Um, and it's really pretty grisly. And we've talked about them before, before, you know, the neighbor, yeah. it, there's just the seediness to the, it looks like these people could be living in like basket case kind oh, of uh, New York. It feels like New York, like but more real. Time, yeah. yeah. And it's, and it really is one of those, I might need a shower films, but the last like 30 minutes, last time I watched it and kind of the reveal and the twist, because you're watching somebody in a slicker with, you know, this little mask that is one of those translucent creepy, but with like um, a little bit of makeup on the translucent yeah. mask. I find, I just, it unnerves me. And I think this is a, a really good one. It was also called, going to be called Holy Communion at one point. Um, I think they changed the name you know, later, but uh, I really do recommend this one to people because I think sometimes maybe it gets a little forgotten. Uh, I do believe maybe Arrow or somebody did a really nice redo uh, version of this recently. I yeah, I feel like I have the Arrow version. I think that's why yeah. we talked about it recently was I had revisited it for that. Yeah, I don't think I had, but yeah, this one just, I, I love those ones that, and I, there's a couple on my list. Most of these on my list are ones that had a big impact on me when I first saw them. And then there's a couple that have kind of like slowly over the years, kind of risen the ranks which uh it's that is definitely one of those so that's my number 10 alice sweet alice fantastic so my number nine oh god i'm already rearranging shit Uh-oh. i'm gonna go with shivers okay uh i all i'm gonna say on that is it's so close but i went with a different one of that director's films at the last oh, second because so I have two that I love because I have two that they are two of my favorite of his films and I struggle, but I am so glad Shivers will be represented. So, so I had nixed his other 1970s film. Can't say what it is. It's in like 13 for me. Um, I love Shivers because that is the one I had no freaking clue where that movie was going. Um, Like it, it just kept escalating and escalating. And that's his first film. Like Cronenberg let you know, from frame one of his very first feature, 
what he was here to do and what he was here to talk about. In every film and, since. Yeah. <laughs> he he and, had some element from that movie. And he never stopped. And he, now his son is kind of picking up that torch and continuing with those same conversations. So Shivers is about a parasite um, that comes from, I think it's bird droppings. But it's some who, sort of sexual parasite too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That comes in. Yeah, it's like a, a weird sexual parasite. Um, but it starts infecting people at the Skyliner Towers, which is like the Shishi apartment building in Toronto, and uh, makes people highly sexualized. It's very orgy-like, but it's spread from person to person. And then they decide to like spread it out past the towers. And the whole movie is just about this. It's basically an STD that just kind of makes you insane and crave more sex. And that that becomes all you think about to the point of killing people if need be. And And it feels very edgy and like it feels satirical, but you never know exactly what that the satire is. And it is always feels really dangerous, like edgy in terms of the sexual side of and also as Barbara uh, Steele. In, yes. in a role, which I thought was super cool. But it has one of the best ending, like, I mean, not the very last scene, but the, the kind of climax, I think is one of the best in all of horror. Like, oh, yeah. setting of the pool stuff. It's just, to me, it's as it's good wild. as the movies get, yeah. It is wild. And so, yeah, this one, I had seen other Cronenberg films, but then I saw this, and this one immediately... I knew who he was and what he yeah. wanted to do. And so it made Videodrome make more sense yeah. um, in that capacity. So, yes, yeah. it's definitely that one of my favorite services. In my number nine, Shivers. Shivers. Also known as It Came From Within. Yeah, or the I think there's an even another title, Sex Parasite Murders or something silly. but um, That makes sense, yeah. It Came From Within is a cool title, but Shivers kicks ass. So. Yeah, I always love the poster for this one too because it uses a lot of forced perspective with mm-hmm. hands. And yeah, it's a really cool poster too. Um, okay, cool. Well, I will match your Canada with my can some Canada of my own because I do love my can exploitation, even though it's meant to be America. Um, so uh, I have a lot of friends uh, who would tell you that the best horror film of the 1970s, like their number one. Um, and, and a couple of them, their number one film of all time is Black Christmas. Um, I know so many people who that is their far, favorite horror film. Um, and I love Black Christmas. And I'd go so far as to say it's one of the f- only a handful that I'd call a perfect horror film. Unfortunately, uh, it is not going to take my number nine spot because uh, the one that has just always lived under my skin by the same director, Bob Clark, is Death Dream, a.k.a. Dead of Night. And it's one of those horror films uh, written by Alan Ormsby that I just always come back to. Uh, there's a certain thing that you know I'm trying to make that I keep mm-hmm. thinking about this movie. Um, and I haven't even seen it recently. I haven't probably seen it in like seven or eight years. But the every time you see it it's it's a political allegory first and foremost like you know clearly this it opens with a soldier in vietnam like the opening scene is in vietnam and he literally gets shot in the head and the next thing you know the telegram has gone to his parents they've been told their son has died in vietnam and then a couple days later he is it might be a couple of weeks i can't remember but basically he shows up on the door one night and he's back and they're like what like but we were told he didn't have grieved and everything. And then here's just this guy and he's back and he's very quiet and you're very subdued and doesn't seem all there. Um, and it's pretty unnerving, like especially the first reveal where they first see him and they're trying to work out what is in there. They, they do what you would do, which is because they didn't see the body. They write off like, Oh, it must have been the wrong telegram. Cause obviously there's a lot of bodies on Mark bodies there. And they, he obviously didn't die because no one would lead with that. And then as the movie goes, you know, it's for one, it's one of the first films I think ever to touch on what, what, what didn't even really have the term back then for PTSD. They didn't even really know what exactly that was um, as a category back then. But uh, another really interesting thing that I didn't know about it. um, I didn't realize this is actually Tom Savini's first film. 
So I, I always forget that this, and, and, and that is yeah. huge to think that he was on set because I'm sure Bob Clark would have been asking him because he was in Vietnam and Vietnam is what shaped his vision of special effects because he was looking at all these bodies. And, and so that, that to me was super interesting when I, when I heard that part of it, but um, I, this is really dramatic. It's very serious. It's not a lighthearted horror film at all. It's not all political. Like it basically he's back and then he starts looking somewhere between a zombie and a vampire, I'd say. And there's a couple great, the great scene in like a drive him yeah. where he's going on a date and you're just not really sure exactly what's going to happen. It's almost like death is taking a while to catch up to him in a sense. And it just, Man, I don't know what it is. And it, it hasn't got that many horror scenes, but it's just a mood. And Bob mm-hmm. Clark is just not, you know, this guy made, you know, a Christmas story uh, and Porky's. And so I think often because he made children shouldn't play with dead things, then he made this right after. And then, a, you know, then he makes, you know, Black Christmas, which is arguably perfect. So it's it's really interesting that I guess sometimes people don't talk about the horror side of him as a director quite as much. But this one really is is big for me and um, one that I just think kind of does all those things we we're talking about at the top really well. He looks so creepy in this movie. Like, that's what I take away is like, honestly, as far as zombies go, I know we've talked about this before that he is just, there's nothing gross about them. He's not a wet zombie like Fulci. He just looks decimated. Like he's been sucked dry and yeah, and sad, so effective yeah, and just sad. It's a very sad um, movie. And it was dealing with things that were sad to people and people were, I mean, again, you have to always remember what something comes out this early, like this is 74. So it's only a little bit of a time is passing when people have actually had to deal with this stuff. It, it's such an interesting thing watching movies like that now, because it's like, well, 30 years later it has power. Imagine four years later, <laughs> you know what I mean? How you'd feel. But, um, and also some really good performances. Uh, John Marley's the, dad and he is from um faces by cassavetes and he's just Mm -hmm. a really good actor and i I just i just i can't recommend it enough and i feel like it's still a little less lesser known maybe uh and that is death dream number nine fantastic um so in my number eight i am putting the devils by ken russell yeah for Uh, some reason my brain didn't even um think about devils devils probably would be in my at least my top 12 or so yeah, I've only Devils, seen it once. I've seen this movie so many times. I've seen most Ken Russell movies, with yeah, the exception is. of maybe Whore, um, a lot. Uh, it, he's just honestly one of those filmmakers that I can watch over and over and still have no clue what's going on. Like Gothic mm. Lair, The White Worm, I will. Pretty operatic. Yeah. yeah. They just all feel like these massive films. Um, very operatic, yeah. And I never have a clue what's going on, which always makes me want to keep watching it. Mm. Devils being the same. Devils, I'd have to say, is probably his least trippy film. Like, it stays, it follows the plot that it sets up. It's obviously based off a book um, called The Devils of Loudon that uh, was written long before this. But yeah, this movie, really good acting in it. This has um, Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed. And just and even like (laughs) yeah, sexiest role ever. He plays um a priest cardinal or Rishu. Mm -hmm. Is that his name? Yeah, Cardinal Rishu. And um there's this nun who is completely attracted to him. She is just like all into him. She's like a hunchback or something, right? She's got like a weird hunch. I don't think that's the appropriate term anymore, but yeah, she's got a disability. Um, And that they play it up like that. I mean, I think it is appropriate when you're talking about Igor or something. No, they definitely, they do make her her look very Igor-ish in just like the general, you know. Some monstrous quality they're trying to give her. her, They give her this quality of, you know, trying to make sure that she feels like the other. And she is incredibly attracted to this cardinal 
and or Monsieur, or whatever he is. He's some type of religious political figure um, who runs the town and is genuinely loved. But she becomes so attracted to him that she kind of begins um, plotting this deceit and like steps she can take so that she meets him. And it starts with like convincing the town that there's witchcraft. So he has to come um, convincing people that they're all going insane. And it's all kind of this nun coordinating all of it. And it gets utterly bonkers, completely bonkers by the end. There are a lot of trippy scenes that she has with him. Like she dreams of sex scenes with him and stuff like that. So it still feels really dangerous, really exploitive, very artistic in that capacity. This film, there was so much wrong with this film um, that supposedly uh, that when it was distributed out to theaters, all of the different theaters started kind of slicing away at it of their own accord based on what they thought was appropriate. And this was commonplace at the time period where the theaters would self-censure. And so if they didn't like a scene in the movie, they would just cut it out. And because of that, supposedly there were all of these different versions of the movie And some of it has been really difficult to recover. There is supposedly a scene at the end. um, It's a masturbation scene. I'll I'll let you look it up on your own. Um, It's a horrifying Christ statue. No. Okay. Well, I'm just going to, because something like that happens in it still. There's a Christ. She definitely feels up a Christ statue, but the whole thing is at the end, after one of the characters is burned to death, Hmm. she supposedly gets his femur and masturbates with it. Hmm. And you could see it plainly supposedly in one of the original ones. And yeah, the femur masturbation there's, you know, you can get glimpses of it and you kind of get the gist of what she's doing, but it's, it's not, but, you know, you could, if you can't see that you asylum have a really cool femur masturbation film. You can watch that. They ripped off last week. <laughs> they, uh, you can just watch the asylum version. It's fine. You know? So yeah, <laughs> it's, um, but I, yeah, this one, um, this it, it's already, it's dangerous. It's transgressive. It has so much to say against the Catholic church. This is, I can't believe this wasn't on your, fucking I actually, no, I think it was, I actually think that was the third film I was trying to think of. Now that you say it, I think that was it. I'll have to look. Yeah, this is all types of just like Catholicism is just political power. It means but it's also basically been banned yeah. for like 30 years. I mean, yeah. it's been more or less impossible to see. Um, you can't get it. It's not on disc still. Oh, on- no, it is on disc still. There was a beautiful release of it a couple mm. of years ago, or at least there was a screening. I know I no, there was a screening. I went to the screen. Yeah, no, there was a screening, but then it got, I think then it got re impossible to see. And right now, the reason I'm glad it's on your list, as of yesterday, it came to shutter. And it's sometimes not oh. on there. It's not always on there very long. I think there still are rights issues uh, occasionally attached to that film. I don't know the full story, but it literally... Everyone was yeah. just writing about it yesterday saying, oh, it's on Shutter. Make sure you it see it. It is on Shutter right just now. Case, yes. So. Definitely see it while it is there. It is fucking bonkers. Yeah, it's definitely not on Blu-ray in America. I would definitely yeah. have bought it if it was. Cause- That's odd because I thought, I swore a couple of years ago that there was this big announcement that it was finally. Well, no, there Blu-ray. probably was an announcement and then probably got somebody got sued or something. Yeah, it's always yeah. had trouble uh, for those kind of reasons. So No, you're right. There is nothing no glorious release of it. Damn. Yep. Yeah. So see it while it is on totally. show. No, I was really glad you brought, I just totally skipped my mind. That wasn't even in my bigger list because I just didn't think about the devils. But yeah. again, I saw people talking about it a couple of days ago. So good to see. Okay. So uh, good. We're on a good roll of not overlap. Oh, that was the devils.
That was the devils. Um, <laughs> the sexy devils. Um, okay. My number eight is, uh, I won't go too deep because I've already, we've talked about it on multiple different shows, but it is my one Argento appearance because the spear will not be on here because the spear is part of a triple feature, a trilogy. What? Don't fucking do me like that. The spear is definitely a trilogy. We We're going to call that a franchise. I think it is. We didn't say anything about trilogies. Okay. We said if, franchise. If you end up putting on, I will I will not. I, I didn't put it on mine because I was like, well, it's got a sequel that a couple years later and then another third sequel later. And so I just thought of it as a triple. I would not block Suspiria from this list given how it's one of the greatest. Damn movies. right you won't. Okay. But, but, I, but it would have been on my 10 ahead of this one, just so you know. Um, but I'm glad I get to, hey, we get to fit in two different movies. So that's cool. Oh, yeah. um, I'm putting in Deep Red be- for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, when I first saw Deep Red. Played it. it. Exactly the same. It's my number seven. Oh. So go ahead. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so Deep Red, when I first saw it, knocked my fucking socks off. And then a few years later, I got the disc and I went to show it to friends. And I was so excited to show it. This is a long time ago, long, you know. And, and I was so excited. And then I just was kind of bored. And then I realized the first time I'd seen, I'd seen some sort of maybe it was a theatrical cut or a US cut. And then the second time I was watching this longer international cut. And then um, a couple years back, we went to the Argento All Nighter and it was the yep. shorter version again. And this is, the, I, I guess it's just one of those films where I, I prefer the shorter version. I think the plot gets in the way a little, um, and a lot too much of Hemmings walking around. But it is a, re- the thing that's so cool about this, because we were talking about Argento is this is a perfect movie to show the growth of an artist of any movie on any list. Cause you watch his first three films and they're all completely grounded in realism, right? They are awesome, especially uh, bird with crystal plume. They're really great slashes, really great giallo, but they are all kind of base. And the scores are classical scores for the most part. And then you get to this and suddenly he's adding goblin. He's adding the camera is able to do anything. Like there's moments where it's spinning 360 or it's doing, it's just mm-hmm. the camera becomes an extension of like uh, Argento, right? Like he can do whatever he wants, I think. And yeah. then there's almost supernatural qualities, not quite in this film, but he's going to go all the way with Suspiria later. Um, and this film just, there's a couple sequences, like the sequence with the hot water and the, the bathtub and the killers, you know, that you'll never forget. But, a, this has good drama. Like David Hemmings is a great, a really good actor. Daria Nicolaides, his girl Friday type thing. They're well cast. They're investigating a really interesting murder setup that sometimes isn't good in Jallos. And then yeah. this is actually good. But the number one thing I, I always say is like, I can't think of many movies that has like a final reveal where it's like, Oh, here's the clue that you're oh, missing. Shit. And here it is. And you're like, Whoa, that's actually really great. So that if you it, it's my wallpaper on Twitter is that reveal. Yeah. Um, this movie is when I see Dario get scary yeah. and he wasn't. I mean, there's some terrifying moments in Suspiria, but not like this. This is where he starts playing around with dolls. Yeah. The, the doll attack is on one of the greatest bicycles. horror things. Yeah. Um, yeah and at you. just so crazy. And it comes running at you. And then the idea that the secret to the entire film is this thing that I showed you in the opening frame that you just weren't paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always pay attention when you get back. It's a great film to rewatch because then you can never not yeah. see things. And it's dealing with psychic. So there is a slight supernatural element because the psychic at the start it has got some sort of connection in you, in, whether you believe it or not. And it has one of the best Christmas sequences of all time, a Christmas flashback murder. So it's it's just a movie that like 
you know, whilst it isn't like it isn't my number one Argento, it is the one where I most see like a director taking this huge leap mm-hmm. in terms of who they would become as a filmmaker. And I and I think, like I said, it might depend which cut you see. And 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 once you've seen the shorter cut, it is nice to see the longer because there's other good stuff in that. But it might just be a a pacing kind of thing. But yeah, look, I love this film, so I'm glad I'm glad oh, that gosh, two yeah. of these will get on here. Um, so that was Elric's eight and my number seven, Deep Red Profunda Rosa. Oh, which means yeah, so we skip your seven. So we yeah, so we skip um, my seven. Easy, we're 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 moving. In. Uh, okay, my number seven. This is what you know. This is not. This is only a little bit of horror and, and more of an action film. And I and I know it's pretty high on my list, but I just kind of love it. And if it turns anyone onto this movie, you'll see why. I freaking love Race with the Devil. I just think this movie is so freaking it's rad. It's on my discards. I <laughs> yeah. love this movie. Jack Starrett, who just did a lot of cool like 70s movies kind of person that you know uh, Quentin loves as a director he just makes fun movies and I love Warren Oates is basically my favorite actor put him with Peter Fonda they've been in multiple films together um, and you have some bad guy R.G. Armstrong in there it's two couples who uh, both work at run uh, dirt bike um, racing and they have like you know motorbike racing and cross sports stuff like that uh, and then they take a camper, which, you know, mm-hmm. you love your camper. Uh, it's a C-class. That's the cool okay, thing. Yeah. yeah, I got to double check. I don't know but anything. It's the same. So in, there's a whole class system oh, okay. in campers. And it, it's based on how much they cost. I need to look up what type of camper it is, but I swear it's a C-class. Um, but I have a C-class because those are kind of the cheapest type of campers. Um, and yeah, so as, just- soon as, as soon as I bought one, I was like, oh, my God, I'm watching Race with the Devil again. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, they're just a blast because it's only they don't have kids with them or anything so it's just two couples uh with their wives and they're just like let's just get out and then we'll do some biking and it just basically i think they're going from texas to colorado and they get not a c class it's an a class i I stand it's a little bigger Um, yeah a little bigger it's got a flat front it's a whole thing uh, well, we'll have a breakout podcast just for the logistics <laughs> of campers for, for Becca, your spinoff episode. Um, but they just, they get blind drunk one night at one of their, you know, campsites and just the two of them, they're outside and they start seeing some flames and they see some, what they look like to them, look like a bunch of hippies around a fire. And then they start to realize, wait a minute, that actually looks like they look like Satanists. And then suddenly, oh, did they just kill and sacrifice a woman? And they kind of get in their camper, take off. And then the rest of the movie is literally them being chased on the road by Satanists. And they go to a small Mm -hmm. town, think they're fine. Nope. Satanists there too. And it just, it keeps going and going. There's some, a couple little shades of backstory with one of the characters where you're like, I wonder if she's involved with something, but it just, it's not so much a mystery. It's just kind of an A to B, uh, chase film, but it really is one of my favorite movies. It's just, I love seeing this movie because it's fun. It's kind of, it just keeps going for it. It has a couple pretty surprising uh, beats story-wise, and it's just that fun 70s uh, action horror type thing. Uh, probably the least close to what I would make, uh, but also the kind of thing I want to watch. So <laughs> blast. This is just such a fun, fast moving yeah. movie set in a camper. Um, so yeah. And I, and, and, and I always wanted to remember, I wanted a sequel where it would be uh, where the house of the devil from house of the devil was being moved and uh, on movers. And we would call it race movers. with the house of the devil. Uh, that, was <laughs> that was my idea, but no one likes that idea. So <laughs> it'd be really slow. Like it's really slowly moving the house. <laughs> There's a lot of those like safety cars, those pilot cars. People are walking <laughs> next to it. Satanists are walking nearby as it's moving slowly to its new location across the street. It's it's not an exciting movie, but it is an effective one. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's my number seven race with the devil. 
So my number six, again, 70s um, was religious horrors, a ton of religious horrors. And that's always been one of my jams, specifically anything involving nuns for some reason. I've always been fascinated by nun horrors. So I knew either Satanic Pandemonium was going to end up on this list or the one that did in my number six slot is Alucarda from 1977. Oh, cool. You know what? Uh, that crossed my mind, but I, for, in my brain, it was a, like a 1969 movie. I don't know why. A lot of those kind of movies were from the 60s, you know? Very. And I do, yeah, like a lot of, um, well, the nuns, the nuns yeah. stuff starts kind of coming in in the late 1960s, yeah. early 70s. And it definitely reaches its peak about 75. I mean, The Devils was 71, and that's considered to be one of the earliest nunsploitation. By the time 77 rolls around, we've had a couple like Flavia, Satanica has come out. Um, and you can go back and listen to my Nightmare University episode entirely on nunsploitation. Um, which that is the will... most jammy jam for you ever. Right? That and Aquatic Horror may be bugs, but someday I will write a book on nunsploitation. Well, I mean, people don't no realize. No one will read it. And that Dark Waters is both is just yes. my, the most amazing thing to me, that you have a religious horror and aquatic horror. And aquatic horror all wonderful. in one thing. And a good and- movie. I've talked, you know, at length about how, um, you know, religious horrors, like I was raised by ex hippies and they're not even that ex. Like my parents were very much like, we don't go to church because we want, you know, everybody believe what they want to believe. And I was raised with, um, very religious family members in the background. Like even though that my parents did not go to church a lot, they were much more, my mom specifically is very kind of ex hippie. Um, but my family members, my surround, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, highly, highly religious. And so it was always this kind of like, well, why don't we kind of fascination? And I was always really fascinated with nuns because I either knew them as they can fight the devil or they sing like Sound of Music. So they were just like these weird ethereal creatures that could defeat evil and sang a lot for me. Um, Did I ever tell you that nuns saved my life as a kid? You did tell me that. It's like a weird nun story. Like my, I had a memory my first day of school where I stayed on the bus and I was in the city of it might be the whatever the main city in Connecticut is. I was five years old and I was probably like and you know, forty minutes away from where I lived. No idea where I lived, no idea my phone number, nothing. I just was literally in the middle of nowhere and I walked up to a nun and she helped me like find my way home and get to play. Isn't that, so I have one nun story and that's it. <laughs> I don't think I ever actually like saw a nun in person because I grew up in such a small town. Um and I don't even think I saw one till I was in New York City. And then they're like, you know. People, they ride, the, <laughs> they ride the subway, they get ice cream, they smoke on street corners. And, you know, then it was suddenly became part of life, of texture, um, of living. But yeah, it, it was definitely something that I was amused by as a child. But that said, number six is Alucarda. This is just as much an evil kid movie as it is a nun movie, possibly even more so. And a devil movie, which makes it just, you know, a win-win-win in my brain. Um, it is a girl's school in Mexico. This is directed by um, Juan Lopez. I'm going to say his last name wrong, but Montezuma. And I'm probably saying that wrong because I'm saying it very phonetically. But um, anyways, he uh, directed the shit out of this movie about a girl's school run by nuns. And the nuns are very stylized. Like, honestly, they look like giant tampons. For lack of a better way of describing them, they're wearing these very kind of gauzy, and I can only think that he did it like that because it's these very kind of white gauzy um, habits, but they've been soaked in red only like halfway down. So it's very much like this ombre red pattern traveling down these gauzy white things. They literally look like giant tampons. Um, But that said, it's a girl's school run by nuns. 
this girl shows up, she's fun, she's normal, she's new here, and she immediately makes friends with this girl named Alucarda, who's basically like the Wednesday Adams of the school. And Alucarda is immediately like, hey, you know what, my new friend, let's go like talk to the devil and practice witchcraft. And new girl is like, yeah, I'm cool with that. And then like flash forward 15 minutes and they're like making out with each other and making out with the devil and naked, like rubbing oils on each other. And then they start doing really evil shit around the school. And then Alucarda specifically gets kind of Carrie-ish telekinetic powers. Um, And then it just goes absolutely bonkers. There is so much going on in this movie and it is an absolute blast. It is what we've talked about before. It feels dangerous. It's transgressive. It's highly critical of the church and it feels dangerous the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I've only seen it one time, I think, and I liked it a lot, but it was like, you know, it was a while ago. So I'm kind of due for a real, I think it's a Mondo Macabro disc from memory and it's Mm -hmm. in it. And it, I wonder why Alicardo, when that that is like almost sounds is Dracula backwards, but that has nothing to do with the film. It's not a Dracula thing at all. No, no, I don't. That has nothing to do with it. I think that's just her name in it. And I am almost positive this is streaming on Shutter as well. Three seconds. I'm actually going to check because I know somebody had told me that they'd seen this recently and it was streaming somewhere. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't I'm think it's checking. that hard to find now. Yeah, um, it is not a difficult one to find. I'm fairly sure it, it is. It used to be, somewhere. I'm sure, but yeah. Yeah. I know that when I worked at Fangoria, um, Sam Zimmerman, who now runs Shutter was or does at least like their curation, was um, just as big a fan as this movie as I was. But at the time, it was hard to find. It is not streaming. You can buy the the beautiful DVD for 20 bucks. Um, but this did let me know that one of my other films is streaming, so I'll get there. Okay, but Alicarda yeah. from 1977 definitely worth picking up the physical copy of. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that we're getting some deep cuts into the list too, because that's yeah, that makes it exciting. Uh, my number six is not really a deep cut, um, especially now that it's a Criterion film, which is just bizarre to me sometimes when these movies. Uh, but that is a movie that I'm starting to think is my favorite of all his movies, um, and it didn't used to be the way. And that is The Brood. By director David Cronenberg. It's two years before my beloved possession. Dude, I thought you were going to play Rabid. Uh, I actually surprisingly am not a huge Rabid fan. I actually think Rabid has the best setup. And and there's moments of it I love. When I watched the beautiful Blu-ray of it, I felt it kind of dragged and was maybe one of his weaker, maybe directed film, even though the idea is freaking awesome. Um, I, I feel like Rabid of, of his early ones is not, my, no, I think the brood's a masterpiece. I, I just watching it again, this last few years, probably being older, you know, having kids and stuff, you start to go, okay, this is a movie made from pain. I mean, we, yeah. we all, we all, talk about everything you could say about possession when you review possession you could also say about this movie but the difference is Cronenberg is not Zulowski Zulowski is a very passionate and everything's big right that is not who Cronenberg is Canadian there's a coolness to his everything he does and so he literally was going through a massive uh custody battle when he wrote this film and so that's what you're watching on screen and psychoplasmics and and again we've got oliver reed coming back in another fairly you know i'd say he's pretty desirable in this too they make him seem like he's a a popular psychologist author yeah um and it's basically a a couple who have have divorced and um 
the husband who uh, Art Hindle would wants to see his um, daughter and he can't see her without going through the wife and the wife has enrolled in a new agey uh, form of therapy where you're kind of tucked away in the middle of nowhere called psychoplasmics uh, with the, the guy who kind of created this. It's like a gestalt therapy, you know, from back in the 70s. Uh, and he is uh, played by Oliver Reed. And what is happening is she's physicalizing uh, her pain and her emotion, and it's uh, literally manifesting in in what we becomes are kind of known as Cronenbergian, right? And yeah, it's like a fetus on the outside, and and there's growing these clone type creature children who are all dressed um, like uh, their daughter. And They're wearing snowsuits. Snowsuits. They, and all have they go out suits. and they buy them like little pajamas and snowsuits. Yeah, but then they go out and commit basically rage murders to cover up for everything uh, to basically keep them protected and keep mm-hmm. people away. And there, there's a scene in this, like, like I when we were, I guess it was during that Cronenberg Fest at Beyond Fest, because I hadn't seen it for a while. You know, the great thing about movie theaters and why movie theaters will never die is like there are these movies we'll watch a bunch on DVD and like, and then you get to see a screening again on a big screen and you're just like, oh, shit. It's like it's like it's reminding you to really pay attention because look how look how great it is um but there's a scene an attack on a school teacher that is just brutal it's like she's teaching oh, yeah. a class of kids and these these creatures come in and beat her to death and you're like holy shit um no this and it's so cool that it is in criterion collection now because you're like yeah it's it's one thing to say it's a masterpiece but then go watch it it is no less dangerous no less messed up no less angry what well, is the angriest of all his films um it is just a really special movie and i it's going higher and higher on my list of my personal favorite movies um and i love that it's also two years prior to possession so i wouldn't even yeah. be surprised if he saw this as part of his influence um on possession so it's that totally makes sense yeah i I wouldn't be surprised but um we'll save that one for our 1980s draft (laughs) guaranteed at number six that was the brood brood. from elric um so my number five is i'm going to guess higher on your list so i'm prepared for it it is don't look now a little higher okay we won't be it won't be long okay Actually, okay. it'll only be one pick. So so that's my number five is Don't Look Now. So we'll be right back to that. Um, so only one in between, which is my number five. Um, and this is a, just a, a personal favorite. Um, it's my favorite of all his films, which will surprise a lot of people because this is everyone's one of our beloved directors from George A. Romero, Martin. Just my personal favorite of his movie. Number 12. Okay, well, good. My list, I'm so glad. just missed. No, but that's still really high. I think a lot of people wouldn't yeah. even have this in their top four of his films, Romero's even, you know, um, and I love a, Romero is really one of my favorite directors, period. I, I've just even seen Night Riders this year on Pure Cinema. I hadn't seen it since as a kid, and it's one of my favorite things I've seen this year. And it, as a kid, I, I did not like it at all because it was boring to me as a kid. You know, it's not a horror film. Um, anyway, Martin is um, John Amplis as it, it's, you know, it's about a young teenager who believes he's a vampire and there's flashbacks that would indicate black and white flashbacks that would indicate he is indeed a vampire and he has this Mm -hmm. uncle who makes you think he is in fact a vampire but there is continually that question he he kind of this movie to me is the template for what i think of as companies like glass eye picks yeah like that tone of horror that fessenden is great and habits obviously great example but it's where it could kind of play either way like if he's not a vampire this is still a great movie 
but I tend to think he is a vampire when I watch this movie personally, but he's not a gothic vampire. It's a, oh, see, I always think he isn't. I, well, I mean, probably. I mean, man. yeah, I always think it's just a mental condition, but his grandfather yeah. is trying to explain it away, or his uncle is trying to, you know, explain it away with religion and that he's obviously a demon. It's another great religion will mess you up movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, that's the whole theme of it is, you know, Christianity will mess your shit up. Yeah. And and belief and these kind of belief system. But yeah. John Amplis is just really, and John Amplis appears in smaller roles roles in almost all of Romero's work, but this, him as the lead, there's something iconic about this role, this, this young guy. And there's these scenes on the train where he's trying to seduce a woman and trying to actually like, how am I going to get her blood that first time? Cause this isn't yeah. like a fangs thing. This is like, I'm going to use a blade. Syringes, yeah, yeah, syringes. Blades and syringes. It's pretty and, disturbing. And I have to say he is, and this is weird to say, cause he's a killer in this movie. He's very sexy. Yeah, like there is something very attractive in his bumblingness, like in his awkwardness, in his like kind of naivety. And um, and it's weird to say, and I for long was like, am I the only one who's almost kind of like attracted to him? And then I met a bunch of other, you know, females in horror who felt the same, who were like, no, no, Martin's hot. And he and is big in the really C-class community. The people who, who can only afford a C-class cruiser are like big John Amplis, sexy uh, Martin vampire girl. No, Hank Williams Jr. is big in the C-class community. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm, I'm with you. I, I think, I, no, I think it's like, you know, the, no, not James Dean-ish, but it, it is, he's not Mr. Confident, I'm going to bed you. He's He gets involved with an older woman. This kind of has a graduate kind of storyline a little yeah. bit in there. And because he doesn't really know anything, you start to side with him. That's what movies do. You you can side with the guys trying to kill someone and and be on their kind of uh, in their vantage point. It's just look, it's a terrific movie. Again, it's one of these ones that criminally no Blu-ray, hard, almost impossible to even get the DVD of this because of uh, Rubenstein, the producer who also did Dawn of the Dead and lots of these films has made. You know, he's probably holding out for a really great deal one day for mm-hmm. somebody to put out martin there is a japanese blu-ray uh, i guess i've never seen I, I, and i've seen i've got the dvd and from the, that's long out of print it's just a terrific movie see it any way you can if you haven't seen it um and i love these kind of this this is the kind of movie i'd love to make you know smaller intimate character pieces um that are, still get to be really dark you know yeah this is it's it's just such a powerful um very 1970s film and it is hard to find something like this today so we'll skip um, my number five to my number four because it is your number f- five. Does that make sense? So your or, number four is don't look now. My number four is, yeah, was your number five or should we go to yes. your number four? We can go to my number four first just so that it keeps going back okay, and forth yes, because you're confusing yes. me. Yes. Sorry. Oh, yes. So We'll so get to my that. number four. My number four is from 1978. And this is one that some people won't consider to be a horror film, but I definitely, definitely do. And that is The Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, cool. Um, That's an interesting inclusion because Carpenter wrote that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, directed by Ivan Kirshner, starring Faye Dunaway. I love this film so much. When I look at the American um, films that were so inspired by the Giallo movement, this by far is my fave. In it, Faye Dunaway plays this photographer, but she's specifically known for taking these violent photos. Like she does these incredibly violent photo setups where it shows female killers or females, um, you know, in apocalyptic situations and things like that. And she gets a stalker and um, people around her start dying and everybody is kind of like, well, it's because you take all these violent photos, but it is focused on her and it's not her 
being like the the kind of, you know, oh, woe is me. I'm being hunted by a stalker. I'm going to go run and find the man or the police and, you know, be forced to solve it on my own. Like she takes control of this shit in this movie. Um, she It does not feel like things are happening to her. It feels like she is taking control of part of the story as well and directing it. And I like that. And I also like the way that the story shakes out, like as far as, you know, the the killers where you know the killer and the killer's coming back for you and you're trying to escape them and you think it's someone around you. This I find to be a really clever delivery of that. So it's just a very watchable, um, fun film. And I, I love my high elevation uh, lifetime films and I can tell this yeah. to be one of the best thrillers. Yeah, there's no, there's no one, there aren't many podcasts on just thrillers. So I think thriller and horror go hand in hand anyway. But this one has also a psych, psychic kind of, Vision. Psychic vibes, yeah, yeah. Psychic visions, um, which is where the eyes of Laura Mars come in as she's kind of like psychically connecting with the killer to an extent. There's a lot going on in this, but um, it definitely 100% is inspired by the Giallo films. Yeah. Um, it is pulling so much from them in just the way that the killer's presented, um, the photography angle, how it is, you know, kind of an artistic society that is being preyed upon, um, that it's about a photographer and that, you know, the killer is likely part of this society. It, it is straight, um, even straight razors. I mean, it is straight from a giallo and it is just a beautiful um, American infused one. Or American I, I, I know Italian I researched infused. it back in the, when we, we did a big Carpenter thing once on Pure Cinema and I, but I cannot remember why Carpenter didn't direct that. Maybe he sold it right when he was doing Halloween or something. But either way, it was like, yeah, Irvin Christian did does a good job. And it's one that I've only seen it a couple times in a long time ago, but it, I definitely liked it a lot. So now you're making mm-hmm. me kind of want to rewatch it. Um, but it is fun. And Faye Dunaway is always great. So, yeah. Uh, so that brings us to our number, my number four and your number five. Um, that is Don't Look Now by one of my other favorite directors of all time, Nick Rogue from 73. This is from a Daphne du Maurier uh, story who also wrote The Birds and many other thrillers one probably one of the best cast couples ever julie christie and donald sutherland you know are, are married couple the, i've seen the opening of this film about 200 times because every film class i've ever had in my life i show the opening 10 minutes and then after i had kids i slowed down on that because it's yeah. so hard to watch but before i was always like yeah just look at all these great graphic matches that's all i could see now i all i see is the death of a child and and it's not much of a spoiler because this movie is about grief it's probably one of the best films in the history of movies about grief i can't even make it through law and orders anymore know, when a child yeah. is like killed it just it, it's something that clicks in when you're a parent yeah but um, we, but the good thing about this movie is is the puzzle and rogue in general but it's the puzzle like way he constructs the opening where it's basically parents inside having a conversation kind of that reflects on their kids and the kids are outside playing near a pond and then as they're getting closer and the kids getting into danger it's almost like basically donald sutherland has this sixth sense about what is about to happen but he does not listen to it because he does not believe in such things and he just has this really weird feeling does nothing about it for a while and then suddenly he's like (gasps) and he just runs off and she's like what's going on so he does eventually listen to it but he but it's not quick enough he actually could have probably prevented what is to come in this in this moment of course most of us would have probably done the same because we wouldn't necessarily think we're having some sort of psychic kind of moment and he gets there too late and you have one of the most uh, incredible visual moments of grief ever put on film where somebody's coming yeah. merging out of water with their child um and 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 then that red cuts to you know a, a year later where they're now in venice and it's a whole so you've, you've skipped a whole chunk 
of what they had to do to kind of get their lives back. And he, he restores um, architectural restoring a church in Venice. And basically you pick up and and becomes kind of like the background of a giallo is the story of the background while somebody in a red slicker is killing um, prostitutes in, uh, in um, Italy in Venice, right? We're very haunting Venice. And then, uh, but he also thinks he's seeing his daughter uh, around in, in little flashes. And so it builds those two things as it goes. And you have, two older ladies who I'm sure you're a fan of the two psychic. <laughs> they struck me as a Becca moment. Like those, I love their vibe. No doubt. No, this one, I mean, this is honestly, it's harder for me to watch now. I used to watch this. It was, it was one of my faves when I was younger. And now that I understand the tragedy that I understand what those parents have to be going through. It's like next level for me, how good of filmmaking this is and how powerful this story is. And the fact that they went to Venice to escape the death, the drowning, but they're surrounded by water in Venice everywhere. And then seeing the the glimpses of the daughter, but knowing it couldn't be her because she drowned and they're in Venice now. And and then the ending, the okay. what the frick well, ending. Yes, and let's be very careful around that because I'll tell yes. you, this is the reason this is so high. There's two movies on this list that ha- altered my entire like the way I approach movies, think about movies. This is one is it went to, is it the Nighthawk? There, no, it was earlier than that. There's a anthology film archive. I think it is in New York. Uh, when I was 21, I don't know. I was visiting from New Zealand and they played eyes without a face. And then the next night it was this, and I had heard of don't look now, but I didn't know what it was. And the last mm, couple minutes of this, when we all, we all have a moment in watching movies, but no moment had my jaw on the fucking floor. Like I, I almost didn't know what to do. I was like in my seat. Oh my God. Horrified. I I won't even go near what actually happens, but it was just so shocking to me. I was not ready for it. And I think, you know, as movies have been easier and easier to see, this stuff is a little bit more consumable and people can trade the, Oh, did you see that crazy movie? But when you had to go see something on a screen and didn't have IMDB to tip you off on the plot, this is one of those movies that had a forever shook. Like the word shook, that's one of the only times a horror movie has had that effect on me that you wish all horror movies would have on you. You know, it's really, it's really something. But, but it's also about grief and it has the equally famous for being controversial because a lot of people thought it was a real sex scene back in the day. And it would always make these lists like, was that a real sex scene that they had? But it is really key because it's basically one of the saddest scenes in the history of movies because it's about a couple who are, uh, and it's intercut with them getting dressed after the sex with a very real sex scene. What would effectively be, uh, you know, the, the, the makeup after this huge grief in their life. Um, and it's really dramatic because of that. It's two people couldn't bear to do the act that would cause life that has now been taken from them to do it again. And it's just one of those scenes that you're like, oh, that's really freaking sad, but also beautifully made. Um, so, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's really, this is a great movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it again, it's, it's, it's tough and definitely feels like the template for something like, you know, some parts of hereditary. This is, like yeah, it's total hereditary. The idea of the wife and the husband feeling so Stuff separated like that, after yeah. a death. A loss, it's yeah. all from like, don't look now. Yeah, that's a more stylized story in the end. Antichrist, I feel like, pulled yep, a lot. Big time, this. yeah. And there is some cool psychic stuff because the, they're not witches necessarily, but there are these two sisters that are kind of mm. witch-like. And, you know, it's a good film to also watch a second time because there's certain things you go, oh, was that the time of some of the events are interesting. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, don't look now. That's a biggie. 
Okay, so that takes us to number three, Whew. which for me is 1973's Messiah of Evil. Higher by one spot. Okay, we'll, we'll get there, and, and I'll let you. And I'll let we'll you kick there. there. Yes, we're very close. So I knew I knew that one would be in both of our top three. So yep. um, my number three is could it, and I could have easily switched these around. Um, but my number three, this was a grower because I only saw it for the first time about you know seven years or six years ago, whatever. And that is let's scare Jessica to death. I can't think of any movie closer to the kind of movies I want to make than this movie is now. Like, there's just something about the tone. If somebody goes, could you bottle Fever it? Fever dream. Yeah, it's like, it, well, and that's going to come up a couple times in the next two movies, right? That we're going to talk about. But Let's Scare Jessica to Death is just eerie, haunting, um, emotional. You know, it's it's uh, by John D. Hancock. Uh, it's Zora Lampert, who's fantastic in the lead. And it's just a woman gets out of it in the 70s. She's being early 70s. So this is one of the earliest of my list. It's hippie exploitation. Because, kind of, yeah. Um, it's very... Very much yeah, yeah. like the, the hippie culture rolls into this old farming island. Trying to look for a new start. And hey, it's a yeah. big farmhouse we can take over and just play our guitar. And, and she has just gotten out of an institution. Um, and her boyfriend and best fr- and his best friend have picked her up. And they're, you know, really looking out for her. And she doesn't seem like, you know, too bad. And But she does have this really interesting use of – actually, that's very interesting. The next two films both use voiceover for the internal mental oh, state of the right. woman. Very interesting. Not very common either in these films. Um, and she, she likes to do things. Like trace, you know, gravestones with the uh, whatever that name of that etching, etching, rubbing, yeah. rubbing or etching. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, they get to, they get to this all beautiful uh, house that you can still visit. Apparently, it's still standing, um, Connecticut or somewhere. Um, oh. Yeah, it's apparently. Um, and they C class camper road trip. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you have a C class, A class don't even show. Uh, <laughs> we won't take you. Uh, but they they show up, and then there's a oh, a young woman of their same kind of age, uh, redheaded, uh, kind of fair skinned, um, lady who's just kind of hanging around. She's been living there while thinking it was an abandoned home. Like, like you said, it's a squatter kind of thing. And of course she starts to kind of romance one of the guys and then eventually starts making eyes at the husband character and then starts forming a very strange relationship to the lead. And as the film goes, I won't say too much more because I do feel like maybe this one, some folks won't have seen, but there are like some certain, again, like, death dream there's certain vampiric but not like fang vampire but there's this fascinating kind of quality that you can never really totally pin down and in this town and there's some a lot of history and i find it to be super spooky and what's happening to the town's folks super weird i did just read when i was putting this together um that it was one of stephen king's favorite horror films which i did not know and it's kind of of cool to hear that actually um probably because the setting probably looks like where his films are often set a little bit this one feels for me like it's got Jess Franco vibes. Like it's a got bit, yeah, for an American yeah, version, right? yeah. like an American version of Jess Franco, where yeah. it is this fevered dream. It's taken its time. It's not, along, you know, yeah, yeah roll on definitely. Yeah, like it's not bit. moving anywhere fast. Yeah, but it, but it is. It's really eerie, and I don't think it's like I don't think it's like art house too slow burn because a lot of weird stuff's happening. And once it starts hitting, it's pretty psychological too because you're often you're really square in the mindset of the the lead because you're hearing her her thoughts but i i truly love this one um and it just keeps going higher and higher on my list every year i see it so that's let's scare jessica death again it wasn't always that easy to see but now there's a beautiful blu-ray finally and probably mm-hmm. on shutter so that's let's scare jessica to death in my number three which brings me to my number two which is your number, number three, three which is messiah of evil which is currently on prime i just noticed oh um, well be careful make sure it looks good because because sometimes they'll stream like shitty copies of things. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure which version is streaming, but Messiah of Evil is currently on Prime. 1973. So this is one that I did not see. 
like I moved to LA when I saw this. It was um, a number of years ago. I know you'll remember this. I had um, gotten a book deal for a publisher that later went out of business for like 101 movies you've never seen or something like that. And so I, um, and this is during our killer POV years that I was going on like this mad hunt to find movies that like I had not seen that were really hard to find to put on this list. And during that time, I watched Messiah of Evil. And so this is only like eight years ago. And um, nothing ever happened with the book. The publisher went out of business. I ended up turning most of the chapters into articles that ran on Fango and Blumhouse and places like that. But I did write about Messiah of Evil and just kind of how remarkable this movie is. The setup is that a um, woman has left her small uh, seaside kind of island, but I think it's like just a seaside town. It's very isolated. Um, town in, I think it's supposed to be Northern California and she's gone off. She is separated from it, hasn't returned. And then she gets word that something may be wrong with her father. Or he thinks he's gone missing. Yeah. He's gone missing. He's a pop artist. (laughs) He's like a weird pop artist. Yeah. Yeah. And so she decides to go back to this weird little seaside town to find out what's up with her dad. And she gets there and the whole town is just mad um like they're just crazy it's it's like the crazies but it's brimming underneath it's just like it's simmering when it's yeah because it's quiet unlike crazies it's all like no one's around and then suddenly it's doing the birds a thing where she sits down to smoke and one bird's there then next shot there's two birds and then they do that in the movie theater it has one of the best movie theater scenes you'll ever see ever my my favorite in a supermarket ever And that's where it kind of comes to a head where she realizes like what's going on with the town. Um, But there are so many just nightmare set pieces in this. Like the whole movie is basically constructed out of these little nightmare set pieces. It's a fever dream. It um, definitely moves at its own pace. I think it's the ultimate. Like when you use that word, I I think this would be my number one movie. I mean, I think it's cut from the same cloth as Carnival of Souls, but it's color and a little bit more modern. So it feels a little bit more edgy in that way. But it's, it's completely a fever dream. Um, Yeah, this one is directed by um, a husband and wife couple, Willard Haluk. I'm saying his name. Hook. Thank you. And Gloria Katz. Um, They did other stuff. This was kind of. Oh, no. They, they, it, it makes sense. Messiah of Evil and Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. So they did Howard the Duck. I they wrote dead. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. They wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of <laughs> They're Doom. They're a pretty big so they, writing partner, but less of a directing team in the world. Yeah, they did. It was definitely like a really well-known husband and wife um, writing team in the 80s, but this was one of their first Early. films in 1973 with this weird little nightmarish movie, and it is so good. And it's funny. Some of the things that I think really work for it were – like they're not fans of their own movie. And I think it's a real shame that they can't, maybe they were at the end, but they never were because it actually um, was recut by the distributor. So mm-hmm. they didn't want voiceover. There was all these things they didn't want and, or the score they don't. And it's stuff that honestly makes the film probably that much better because it I think the score really, is great. great. And, and the voiceover is what it. it's the same as um, let's scare Jessica yeah. to death, where you're hearing this voiceover from a narrator that you don't even really know if they are still alive or yet. Yeah. It's um, very it's untrustworthy. Other- worldly kind of poetic, you know, pearls of wisdom from a mountaintop kind of waxing poetically about what's going on. Um, But at the same time, you really don't understand if they're still with us or if this is coming from beyond the grave. And it's, it's great in that capacity. It does give it otherworldly quality. 
Yeah, and, and and I know it all sounds very non-narrative, but if you haven't seen this film, uh, just so you know, so the Blu-ray is a uh, code red one. It still exists, and so if you can ever get it, I just say get it because the version online might not be as good. But this is, uh, it actually starts, you know, she's walking around the, t- the town and she does meet some cool guy and he's normal and comes back to her house and they talk and he's got a girlfriend. And, and so there's a lot of also 70s hangout stuff for a little bit of it too before things get weird and people get killed. So so it has it has an, it does have an in. But then it starts going like off the rails. But I actually found out about this one from probably maybe only a year or so before you like it was around that same time. But it was from my favorite film book of all time, which is Nightmare USA, which is all, you know, I, I just we could just do show after show just on that book. Just um, on that. But that's where I heard so about it for the first there. time. Um, and yeah. so they kind of broke down some of that. So that is Night- uh, Messiah of Evil. And again, if you watch it on. Amazon. Just watch to make sure the quality looks good. Otherwise, if I was you, I'd wait because it's a beautiful film. And something I didn't know is that there's a man in the opening scene and he's running down the street and a little girl comes out and like is going to get him. Turns out the man is the director Walter Hill, which I never knew that. Wow. Streets of Fire has already come up today. He directed Streets of Fire. Yeah. Uh, and I never knew that. Even when I watched it every time, I, it wasn't until I read that it was Walter. I was like, oh, because he's a friend of theirs. So, uh, so Messiah of Evil was my number three. It was your number two. You jumped. It's no, okay. Did we? Yeah, jump? Did. I didn't do my number two. Oh. It's okay. I'm confused now. We'll call that a Messiah of Evil moment, and I'm not going to do okay. my number two. Um, okay. So, my number two, I don't need to say much about because we talk about it a lot, is Suspiria, which I'm not calling a fucking franchise film. If it's it part takes, of a huge franchise of Suspiria, if it Everyone. takes. That long, we talked about this. It's not a sequel. They're not sequels. But Inferno is a and sequel. And if it takes, it took like, no, it took so long to get them made. Um, so, And was it intended to be part of a trilogy from the beginning? I, I would need to Google I don't know if when they first thought of it, but I do think it was pretty early on that they were going this a three mother thing. But I, again, I would never block that. And it's not like they were, okay. it's not like, the, it's not like some traditional it's, blockbuster. It's not like a Jaws or an Exorcist or an but Alien, just know, you know, a year later. This would be tied with my number one. Like if we, okay. if I had included it, I would have had it tied with the thing that will be my number one. I don't know which one would be above, but it is one of the greatest films ever made. I love uh, Suspiria okay. to my core, but yes, yeah. take it away. So yeah, this <laughs> one, um, you talked about how you've seen the first 10 minutes of Don't Look Now um, like a bajillion times. I'm the same way with Suspiria where I have seen the first 20 minutes yeah. um, up through the hanging probably a bajillion times because I show that opening 20, 25 minutes in just about every class I teach. I show it in my opening film classes because literally Argento beats you over the head with every tool in the director's toolbox. Sound, composition, lighting, framing, production design. Like it's just all smacking you across the face the entire time. And I love it because even my students who, um, they can come in, you know, freshmen have never watched a film as a filmmaker before, but I can tell them to watch for elements of filmmaking and it just screams it at them. So it's a really accessible film in that capacity. At the same time, I showed it in a freshman class once and one of my um, students passed out mm-hmm. because of it. And I had That's to call awesome. the EMTs. And so it will always haunt me because it was the moment where they're stabbing the heart. And I always look at that scene as looking so fake because it doesn't look like a heart. It looks like a chicken liver. And the stuff coming out of it looks like freaking poster paint. But I look over and I got, see all these students kind of standing up and one in the middle that's just slumping down on the floor from under her desk. And I was like, oh, my God, she passed Yeah, out. it's like when you put that um, in context with the music and with 
with the other parts and the mm-hmm. kind of hysteria and the supernaturalness. It's like somehow it works that it shouldn't it work, works. but he, he links it all. And I've never heard music that feels like it's attacking you in the way that nope. he uses it. And it does. It's like and it's swooping it, down to attack you. It's amazing. And it just continues with the fever dream throughout. I don't understand the logic. I've shown it in full classes where I show the whole movie before and afterwards I have you know, students asking me about how the logistics of the witches work and the magic and why didn't they do this? And why did they wait till this moment to do this? Why did they kill Udu Kier? And I don't fucking know. Don't, don't ask. Don't ask. We don't ask. Okay. Because his voice was dubbed. Some (laughs) weird American voice. Hello, I'm Udo Kier. Why did his dog have to die? I don't know. We don't know. It does not. Why are there Greek in there? I I have always heard that about like in like fantastical things with witches and that that animals were easier to control mentally or something like if i have heard i don't know that's not based okay. on but in movies i've heard that explained before for some reason okay. um but we'll who, go with that you logic. know it's fine that's the thing um <laughs> same people yeah. still wondering about the it follows rules just it's the same thing yeah it's the same thing like when we get to the 80s and i'm sure we'll talk about the beyond where i'm like don't ask me about yes. how the plot logic works but i fucking love this movie yes. and so suspiria is um definitely Quite possibly one of my number one films of all time. Yeah, yeah. I have the patch on my jacket. If you check out the fancy, fancy steelbook from Synapse, you can hear me blabbing about how much I love it um, at length. And yeah, this this movie, and I, I think I've probably mentioned it before, but um, when I show it in my film classes, I always say that it's the first film I recall seeing where I actively wanted to be on the other side of the camera. Mm. Um, I was probably 15 seeing it for the first time roped in because of the, the only thing more terrifying than the last 10 minutes of this movie or the first 90 or whatever it is. Um, That, that delicious tagline that it had. And I remember seeing that in the video store and being like, okay, I'm in. And it was the first Argento I'd seen. And I just remember that being the first one where I wanted to see how it was made. I wanted to pull back and and break that fourth wall and see how everything was being constructed because I was like, where the frick are the green lights coming from? Why is this hallway blue? And suddenly I wanted to see the artifice. What else you want to read about? You want to be like, well, what did that color mean? Why did he do that? And you want to know those decisions, which are- Did the building already look like that? Or did you paint those birds and fish, you know, that MC Escher stuff on just for the hell of it? Um, Yeah, like I had so many questions watching it. Like yeah, about no. directorial choices. And I think you, every time you watch this movie, you'll start noticing other sequences. Mm-hmm. Other parts will turn you on more than, you know, it's, I think the giallo-ish sequence right in the middle where the person with the blade is going into the barbed wire and in the green yeah. light, like that's just an amazing sequence and it's different than the rest of the movie. It feels more like a giallo sequence in the middle of a film that isn't a giallo film. Oh, yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, Suspiria Holy is shit. really wonderful. Do we both have the same number one? Because I don't. I was so. not planning on that happening. I don't think we will, but I will. I'm going to shout out a line from it, and if it's right, then we do, and that will be an amazing moment because we have not talked. And if we're wrong, because we could have total opposites, because there's another I movie think we may. Right here. So I will shout out one line, and if I'm wrong, we'll go into yours. Okay. Okay. I think you're all flaming mad. I think you're all flaming mad. <laughs> Which is my favorite line in a movie, I'd say. Yeah, so Different, Wicker Different? Man. Is that your number one? I am Wicker Man for my number one. Oh, I don't know that movie. Well, tell me more about it. Yes. My number one's Wicker Man. <laughs> How the fuck did we do that? Holy, Holy balls. shit. I was we- definitely 
You would go in a different direction. I'm amazed that both of us have almost no movies in common, and yet we both have Wicker Man as number one. This best movie, okay. hands down, 1970s. Well, let's talk about Midsummer for a second. Midsummer is the movie that Wicker Man says, "Hold my beer." So all you, yes. all you 19 year olds listening, going, "Oh, Midsummer director's cut." Oh. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry. Go watch Wicker Man before you gush too much, because and we're not even going to go. And we're not going to ruin. But where I said, "Don't look now," is one of the best endings I've ever seen. It's not the best Man. because Wicker, Wicker Man has Man. the greatest, yes. and the reason it's the greatest ending, unlike Don't Look Now, where it's a shock ending. Wicker Man, the entire fabric of this movie is built towards its ending, and everything is leading both you and the character towards that moment. And it is yes. fucking genius. And Edward Woodward as the, you know, say it, say he, it, as a verge. Oh, Iwawuwa. Um, Edward Woodward, Woodward without a D. If he was stripped of his D, he'd be Iwawuwa. Um, but yes, it's a, it's it's a long running gag. Um, but he's he's just and he was the Equalizer in America. So I, I grew up watching him on this TV show called The Equalizer before I saw Wicker. I think I saw Wicker Man at sixteen, seventeen. It was it was early. It wasn't late like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even believe what I I couldn't even believe what it was because I didn't also know what much about folk horror back then. And, you know, it's hard when this is the first one you see because you can't top it. Yep. But it's, and Christopher Lee always says it's his best, but Christopher Lee's favorite of all the films he was in. Um, but I'll let you do that little, a little background of the story. And uh, because I, I, I don't want to ruin it, even though it's so obvious for most par fans who have seen yeah. it. Yeah. I just think this, let's hold it a little bit. Yeah. This is folk horror at its finest. Um, do not see the Nicolas Cage version <laughs> until you've seen the original. Yeah. It's, um, it's dumb fun. So Nicholas we don't consider this part of a franchise no. because one, it took 40 years. Wicker to Tree was like, yeah, 40 and years Wicker later. Tree was it. like, yeah, yeah, 40 years later. And the Nicholas Cage version was like 40 years later. Um, and then Midsommar is basically like a love letter yeah, to yeah. Wicker Man um, with completely different notes. It's it's definitely different more ideas. Like a thing. Yeah. yeah. Wicker Man's very adult. You see it's important. So, the set of Wicker Man, this police officer is called to this um, weird, or is he a police officer? He's a police sergeant, yeah, yeah. He's a police sergeant um, in Scotland. He's very strict, yeah. very regimented. Very um, religious. No time, he's yeah, very, very religious. So. Very highly religious. Is called to this weird little town of Summers Isle um, to investigate a missing child report. Which now there's a couple on our list. I'm realizing quite a few of like, oh, that person was missing. And that's why I come to the place, which is interesting. Yes. Like, since I have evil. That the seems missing to father be, and, it's don't look now. Yeah, it's uh, always the yeah. missing person. Yeah, um, that might be a theme of the 1970s. But yeah, so in this, he is called to this weird little um, kind of pagan town um, of Summers Isle. To because they have a missing child. It's like a cult, like so, a, uh, like a hippie cult or something almost. Yeah, like. it feels like a hippie cult. It feels like they're still very pagan. They're very much into their harvest, their rituals surrounding their harvest. It's very much they make. It's like orchards. We have fruit. We have grains. And if we don't do these very specific like ritual celebrations in the fall, then our harvest does not come to fruition. And so um, they have, and the longer he stays on the island, the more kind of um, both almost tantalized he gets by their lifestyle, but at the same time repulsed by them. It becomes this very much like, get away from me, you demon children. Um, But at the same time, he seems to be almost captivated by them. Um, There's a scene where uh, Brett Eklund, who is just fucking gorgeous. Yeah, she's she's at that period Um, where she's like maximally beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And she shows up naked at his door, his hotel door. Banging on the wall. Gyrating, singing 
singing this song, How Do, which the sneaker pimps do a beautiful cover of. Um, and it's, and then it cuts and it's like everybody in the town is like having like group orgies outside in the field. And it's just, except this Edward much. Woodward, he's not having any orgies. You are. He doesn't do He's that. inside clutching the pillow over his ear yes. so he does not hear Brett Eklund's siren song calling exactly. him. Exactly. And it all, he starts seeing glimpses of this child around the island. So he thinks he's and onto so it. He's onto he the He thinks trail. he's solving it. He thinks he's found it. He thinks that some of these weirdo pagan people on the island have done something with her. They clearly did something with her. And then it leads up to this ending and you're just like, what the fuck? So like this, just- this is the point of the episode where you should now stop and go watch Wicker Man or fast forward the next two minutes because fuck it. We're just going to go three, two, one. Holy shit. They burn that motherfucker to death because he's a virgin. Because he's oh a virgin. God. Oh my God. He just should have had sex with Brett Eklund while she's running. He would have been fine. Store. No, it's, it's, it's a movie and- that as a puzzle, it's so amazing when you watch back to, or you think back as you're watching because you're like, Oh, there was no missing girl. He's brought to the island because he's a virgin to sacrifice. And they're just and using they're, the idea yeah. there's to, to get him there. And, and it's everything so that they are doing is just kind of going through the motions. Everything that you see is this, a second time I've used this word tonight, artifice to try to keep him there and keep him interested and make him bring his God to the forefront so it becomes like, your God's not the real God. My God's the real God, which is like literally what he goes down in flames screaming. And it's all for a harvest to bring back their yeah. harvest. All for a harvest. Uh, and, and there is just so many just wonderful moments in this. But him, Yeah, that's why that line I said is just I've never forgotten. It. It's like he just sees it and he sees what they're planning for him. And he's just like, I think you're all flaming mad. And you're just like, oh, boy, like this is and, you know, and he's and he's singing. The Christ songs as he goes. Oh yeah, down. he and is going down singing it, like really very dirge like him. Yeah, um, it's really a special movie. It's it, there's nothing quite like it in all of just like Suspiria. There's nothing like there's nothing like The Wicker Man. Really, it is the reason that you have the burning at the end of Midsummer. Oh, it of is course, the yeah. reason you have the bear suit. Yeah. Um, in this, he's pulled into this massive human shaped Wicker Man with all these different compartments that they put animals in. So it's like a massive sacrifice. And then they all sing in this beautiful. Yeah, no, it's such a weird juxtaposition between one of the most disturbing deaths in the history of movies while around it, there's joy and happiness. And, and so it's almost like that classic. And I always love this idea where when you tell people how you tell stories, but if you had told it from a different character's perspective, it'd be, it'd look totally different. What if we had told the same movie through Lord Summerall's perspective? You know, did the candidate make it here? Oh, great. And like suddenly, oh, it would be a winning moment at the end of this, right? It's like, so it's all where you place the camera and because we're with Woodward it isn't good <laughs> you know it's utterly it, fascinating yeah it is it is such a great I am movie. so happy that we didn't this unplanned. I know that so shows great Man, podcasting you said you saw this pretty young surprisingly not, this was a big moment in my life for me mm-hmm. a huge moment so um this I, I straight out of my um, my first graduate degree is in education, specifically English and film and theater education. And I was teaching theater and film in a high school outside of D.C. and liked it. And I loved my students, but it was definitely um, I hated faculty meetings. I hated IEP reports and 504 plans and uh, no child left behind and oh, yeah, week long right. training sessions about how to give a child an emotional hug. And it was just 
all of the stuff I loved teaching, but all of kind of the the litigious stuff that came with it of teaching in that time period, the No Child Left Behind stuff was just insane. Um, because everything was mandated. Yeah, I remember, it wasn't yeah. that I want to teach Lord of the Flies. It was no, no, no. This is these are the books you may teach. Um, and it was it was just a very kind of stifling, uncreative time to be a teacher. And um, so I reached a point after four years of teaching theater and film in high school where I decided that I was going to sell every possession I owned, every possession and my house. I'd bought a house then because I was a teacher. I had a salary. So why the hell not? Um, and so I'd bought a townhouse and I reached a point where one week I was like, I'm going to sell every damn thing I own and I'm moving to New York City. And I don't know what I want to do, but it's either going to be horror films or dance. And so I was like, so I better start getting good at both of those and see where the chips will fall. And so after I made that decision, I remember vividly that I made a list of horror films that I knew were classics that I had never seen before. And Wicker Man was on that list. Mm. And I had vivid memories of sitting on my old crate and barrel couch that I sold in my old townhouse listing possessions on eBay while watching Wicker Man. Yeah. Cool. And so it just was like him, you're this, shedding all these. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It was just this incredibly pivotal moment in my life where I just reached this point of like, fuck this. I'm either going to end up, you know, dead in the park and they're going to make a law and order about me or I'm going to completely figure out something to do with my life. And ultimately, it was the best decision I ever made, though. It made my mom cry endlessly at the time. Um, she's gotten better about it now. But yeah, yeah it, it was just this crazy moment of that. And I remember sitting there listing everything on eBay while watching the wicker man and a lot of other films during that time period as well. But And and I'm always curious because, you know, this is another part, like I knew nothing about don't look now when I got to the end, I knew nothing about wicker man. When I saw this, um, did you know, before you push no, play. Okay, great. great. No, that's good. Clue. No, it's an amazing thing to be able to experience yeah. some of these movies. And like that. Also, if you like this, follow this up with Radiohead's Burn the Witch video. Okay. <laughs> it's it's the Wicker Man as a cartoon. Well, I know. I, I think we're going to uh, do a uh, folk horror episode soon. I know we're, we're going to wait for that great folk documentary, but I think yeah. we'll probably do a folk horror before that one. Just yeah. us. And, and then, then, then we'll have them the a, few, yeah. a few months later because it's going to be a few months till that comes out. But I, I think both of us are itching to to do a folk horror episode because we're both into that so much. So um, that was great. Great list. How about, um, because we've, it's all right, we're going long, but let's just do the title. Can you, are yours in order? Could you count down yours quickly? I wrote them down. So number 10, Daughters of Darkness. Number nine, Shivers. Number eight, The Devils. Number seven, Deep Red. Number six, Alucarda. Number five, Don't Look Now. Number four, Eyes of Laura Mars. Number three, Messiah of Evil. Number two, Suspiria. And number one, Wicker Man. I think that's only three the same? Maybe four. Three three the same. So that's that's great because we could add a lot more. And the funny omission. Don't Look Now, Messiah of Evil, and Wicker Man. I will say last night it came up that because we were trying to debate whether zombie would yep. classify and so i thought it was going to be on yours which is I was, I was eyeing it at number 10 and then i was like hmm. my number 11 the other one that i was questioning was black christmas because it did turn into a franchise but yeah but a decade or two I, later i wouldn't have counted i think black christmas would be fine i think i feel like it's actually good that zombies not on only because i do think that was made as a sequel so technically yeah. they were trying to make money off it as a sequel so therefore, I think even though it's such a badass movie, it'd be around my like nine or 10 spot anyway. Yeah, a- we ultimately decided that I'm not even too sure which sequel it's part of. I know, because there's, I know. I, it was Day I of the Dead. It's a sequel but- to Dawn of the Dead. 
It might be a La Casa film. I don't know. It's, it's um, one of those seagulls. What is that? Ghost Galleon? Beyond the Door. Yeah, so yeah. Blind Death. I don't know. It's something in yeah, there. Blind Death. That's the one, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, just quickly. It's a great film. I debated I, one of the Blind Deaths. On you know what? I've never seen any of the Blind Deaths. Blind Dead. Blind Dead. Blind Dead. I've never serious? seen any of them. None of them. I always look at them and go, huh, why have I never seen this? And then I just have it's, never done it. Maybe I got to do it. It's a one. really tight zombie film, but it gets a little bit more rapey than I usually okay. prefer with my zombie films. But there is something cool about the yeah. setup because it does bring in. It's a zombie. No, and I say that very cavalierly. Yeah, yeah. They're way rapier than yeah. most zombie films. That's yeah, like yeah. the downfall. I don't of it. think of many but, zombie films as rapey, but that's funny. I know, right? They are in this yeah. one, um, which is where kind of my my you know kind of hesitation to put it in my top ten comes because I always watch them with like that. Oh God, I wish you did. Would you say humanoid yeah. from the dead? Um, perhaps. Uh, we could link the two. That's kind of the linkage. But what they do have is it is um, religious zombies. So it's got this like, yeah, I knew that. I knew that that was the thing. Yeah. And it's a cooler story than most zombies. They're not just rising from the dead. Like these are like crusaders who are their eyes pecked out. Like there's a lot of backstory. That's really, I'm going to, I'm going to fill that gap in my history. Cause I don't know why I never did. Yeah. I know there's a couple. Okay. Just quickly. Number 10. Great box set of those. Oh, okay. So yeah. Uh, number 10, Alice, Sweet Alice. Number nine, Death Dream. Number eight, Deep Red. Number seven, Race with the Devil. Number six, The Brood. Number five, Marden. Number four, Don't Look Now. Number three, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Number two, Messiah of Evil. And number one, The Wicker Man. Somehow we fell in the same like, number um, I feel like we need to, to, at the end of this, we need to go through every decade. And then we need to make a comprehensive list of like yeah. the best 40 movies ever made. Of just our personal our franchises. Yeah, yeah, that are our, our personal. Favorite. Yeah, no, we'll probably do the 80s next. And then maybe we'll go back to the 60s. And then maybe we'll do the I 90s. I want the 60s next. Yeah. Because the 60s was such like oh, a weird great, yeah. moment for horror. Where okay. you've got these like. Arty horror, this very kind of artor, artor, I can't even say artor, the word, yeah. horror, thank you. And then you've also got this kind of the emergence of the drive house horror where you get like Herschel Gordon Lewis. Oh yeah, it's all over the map. It, there, I, I would bet if we do 60s, we'll probably have almost none in common. Like it could be any, you could go any direction. But yeah, no, we've got 60s. I think 80s would be fun because especially avoiding the... The franchises the franchise. would make it super interesting because there's so many great yeah. franchise movies. Um, and then all the way through nine. So we'll do this every every so, few episodes. We'll keep doing these. Next month for 1980s. Yeah, I think we'll do, yeah, April April for 80s or 60s. We'll decide. We'll see. Oh, let's do April 80s. It's got- Oh, yeah, know, April kind of 80s. I like that. Okay, April. Yes. So if you guys like this one, let us know. We love doing these kind of countdowns. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks. And if you uh, need some more deep cuts, because obviously we didn't have our movie fighter deep cut here today, we will have another deep cut episode coming out in the next few days over on the Patreon. On our Patreon show, and I can guarantee that we will be discussing the ones that are on our discard list. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk well about a few of them. New batshit movies, because oh, I got a couple of batshit ones I've got sitting on my desk cool. right now that I can't wait to watch. Yes. So this will be on. That, that is where we save some because we do like to talk about the new films here to give them some love because they're hitting streaming device. But we do save some of our weirdest stuff for the other. Usually, shows. I would put Voyage of the Rock Aliens on deep cuts, but I couldn't wait, and I was really excited. You know, you got to, so. you just got to let it loose sometimes. I think. Uh, but anyway, thank you guys for who do go over there and support it. It does help us a lot. It helps us track down movies too, uh, and be able to afford some of those like little. Uh, Honestly, that's, that's my. Movie oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, for sure. That's how I've done do it for that. Um, now I can this one exactly. And, and, yeah, and a big so. thanks to uh, Ernie behind uh, the controls, and a big thanks to Fangoria for their continued support.
The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 